Hi, everyone. Welcome to Office Hours. Great to have you here. If you're watching on YouTube, you can find out more about what we do on officehours.global. Our first hour, always a general discussion of production and IT-related topics where we answer audience-submitted questions. Second hour, typically a deeper dive into a topic, and today we're going to be discussing office shoots. You know, there's a lot of work in corporate video, and the skills you tend to build when you're going on location and setting up to do a good talking head or executive address to the troop-style video are often those skills are useful throughout your entire career. So it should be an interesting second hour discussion today. So, Alex, what is our first question today? Our first question is from Jack Cannon in Phoenix, Arizona. And Jack asks, what is your go-to brand for audio and video cables, HDMI and XLR mostly? We're going to start with Tom Ferguson. Tom? Well, I'll start with the HDMI cables. I like the high wings that I get from Amazon. They're braided and they have the rubber boots on the ends and seem to be pretty strong. Nice. Jason? All right. I'll take the XLR. Um, I'd say Monoprice Quad Shield, um, or what are they called? Star Quad, work pretty well. And Alex? Yeah, the original uh, manufacturer is Canary. Canary uh, Starquad cables is what you're probably looking for for uh, the cables themselves. And you're going to want to see Neutrik connectors. Um, typically, I mean, it's not that Neutrik has some secret, but it's just that if they have both Starquad and Neutrik, they're probably a little bit more expensive and a lot more uh, re reliable. Um, most of us who have to build a lot of these um, buy the Starquad as a roll, <laughs> a roll of cables, like a thousand feet, and buy a bunch of connectors. Um, what I would recommend is if, if you've done any soldering in the past, is you can buy cheap connectors, um, just buy like 50 cheap connectors, buy some cheap uh, uh, mic cable, and learn how to solder them together. Uh, once you get through about uh, 25 to 50 ends, you'll be uh, probably pretty close to it. Watch some videos. They're not, it costs almost nothing, but it'll save you so much money to buy, and, and you have so much more. Um, ability once you learn how to solder them yourself, uh, you'll make better cables. But it but don't use the first ten or fifteen cables that you built because they won't be as good. Um, here we go. And uh, I would imagine if we ask for a show of panel hands about how many people have cables that are 10, 15, 20 years old and still working fine because people invested in a good quality cable once, you would see a lot of hands going up. It, yeah. If you spend into this, it will last your entire career. Yeah, the big the big problem with um, with cheaper cables, especially well, the monoprice HDMI cables, for instance, there's not something I'll buy because the failure rate is really high. Notice, the, notice I didn't say the didn't HDMI say cables. Yeah, exactly, the HDMI cables, but the, uh, but with, with audio cables, they will last a long time. There's a couple things that keep them to last longer is rolling them correctly so you're not increasing the tension across them as you, as, you know, so that's the over-under. Um, but also um, when you have high-quality connections, where they fall apart is usually at the connectors um, where things have been beaten around a little bit and they start getting whacked or they get run over enough times where they don't work as well. And if you don't know over-under, it's just a subtle little thing. If you take a, something and you just keep going in a circle, it will eventually build a memory. So almost everybody that we know does a wrap that way and then a wrap under like that. And if you do that consistently, when you toss the cable, you can toss a even a long cable, 15 or 20 feet, and it will come out flat, straight, no circle -er. It just doesn't learn uh, the wrong thing. So people are very specific about that on sets. Learning an over-under cable wrap is one of the kind of functional basic skills of being on set. Let's go to the next question. 
Next question is from Roscoe Jones in Madison, Indiana. And Roscoe asks, hopefully somebody, quote unquote, old here knows uh, knows this. What happens when you plug the Y cable from a, a Y PBPR uh, signal into a composite input? A church uses an old HDV cameras, the JVC GY HD 250 that I'm hoping to add seven inch focus assist monitors to uh, Field World FW 759s. And we're all going to answer this question in our old timers voice here. Uh, let's, there are a lot of people here with a lot of experience. So, John Preto, start us off here. Chris is old. He didn't raise his hand. So, uh, Alex and I were talking about this before the show. The, the luminance, the Y signal off that should go black and white in the field world. But for 20 bucks, you can get a, you can get a, component to hdmi they're they're relatively available on amazon they need they need ac power but it's probably what i would do alex is there a difference in your feeling in terms of hdmi versus ypbpr in terms of the cable uh well i mean you're gonna have to get the hdv i mean i think that you i think that the key is you have to get to the to get to the into the field world i think that the field world will need an hdmi cable so i think that's the I think, or or maybe the field world has has those little analog in. I wouldn't. You're not going to get more out of it once you're once you're in a composite solution. You're going to get a composite signal, <laughs> so, or yeah. or some kind of once you're in a composite, you know, or not composite, but even the those ones. So I don't. I mean, you can do the best you can. <laughs> so, yeah, and I so think as I recall, Field World has a variety of monitors at different price tiers, and the higher you go yeah. in the price tier, the more various connectors on the back of the monitor you're likely to find. So yeah, we, we can try to take a look at that one. I, I think it may have. I mean, some of these monitors do have, admittedly, have a um, the Y. And, and and one thing I would say is that you don't. You could theoretically just get black and white into the back of that monitor, and it would be enough for focus. So if you're just doing focus assist. Um, you don't necessarily need color um, to make that work. In fact, um, a lot of times when you're dealing with focus assist, you don't um, actually have that. You you so if you get just the black and white out of the camera, you can actually, especially if there's peaking available, it does look like there might be. Um, and in this field world, there there are some composite inputs. Um, you you get black and white, and if you turn peaking on in the monitor, you're going to get a red where things are in focus, and um, and so that might be it. Might be just fine just to get the black and white out. Chris Fenwick has a last thought here before we move on. I, I can't remember the exact detail, but a friend of mine who used to shoot golf, uh, you know, he's one of these guys that can actually shoot a tee shot, you know, 400 yards or whatever they do. Um, he would, t he told me that um, when in the old days of tube cameras, that there was one tube in particular and you could on the old viewfinders, you could select which tube you wanted to look at that had the better contrast for finding the golf ball. So um, you, you certainly don't need color in a viewfinder. Um, so yeah, black and white would work for most. Yeah, I've I seen would say the red. Oh, oh. Yeah, I'd say the red. <laughs> I've seen though a lot of, uh, well, blue only. I've seen a button on certain monitors for blue only and, mm -hmm. um, yeah. And green also, uh, compositing RGB. Anyway, there's your answer. Let's go to the next question. Next question is from Douglas Carmichael, and Douglas asks, are PTZ cameras mostly used when the production can't pay for camera operators, or are they for shots in perspectives operators can't get to? Jason has an opinion on this. Jason? Well, sure. They're used for both of those things, but but not mostly or, or you know, there, there is no all or every here. Um, 
you know, let's say you've got a, a TD who has a really specific creative vision and they've done a lot of practicing. Um, you know, they may have set up these preset shots just to make the whole thing easier. It's, it's not always a budget thing. Alex? Yeah, uh, to what Jason said, I mean, a, a lot of times we find, I just used some PTZs and one of them was exactly what, what was mentioned is that we, we had to get up high and wide and we can't put someone up there and we don't want to put someone up there. So it's great. You can hang it from a truss. You can hang it from somewhere else and get it out of the way. A lot of times we use PTZs for overhead. So someone's working on a desk and you want to be able to reframe what they're what you're showing to the audience about what they're doing. Um, oftentimes in a group setting, let's see if I can figure this, let's see if I can find this real quickly. But in a group setting, um, you can, uh, let's see, oh, here's, here's a good example. Uh, let's see, seven. So here you can see in a group setting here, we have a mixture of them now. One of them is locked off. You know, this is a, um, this is a lock off camera here, but these ones are, are here. And this, this one is most likely programmed for these three people. And the one on the other side is programmed across, you know, so we're shooting across here. And um, the advantage of these is that once you program with, with a PTZ, and these are BRC900s, I think, once you program the frame for each one of these folks, it is a keyframe away. You hit the button and it's just going to frame them. So when they're sitting there, it's actually faster than a human being can get that frame. And you can make fine adjustments to it later, um, but, but being able to basically define these frames. The other thing that it does is that there's a lot less distraction. Here you can see a situation where we've got five people that are going to talk to each other. You're going to have these um, PTZs here, and there's just a lot less. What happens is, is as human beings, we are drawn to eyes. You know, we are drawn to faces, drawn to eyes. And so a lot of times we use PTZ cameras to get rid of the faces and eyes that someone may look up at. So you can see when that doesn't work in a show, when people are looking up at somebody, you know, they're talking and they, and especially when they're telling a joke or something like that, they're looking for reaffirmation. And so they'll look up and, and they'll look around for people to be laughing or whatever. And that's a big distraction. So the more we can get, especially in studio environments, the more PTZs we can get. And oftentimes we hide behind teleprompters, PTZs. We even put up uh, um, Dubatine to try to hide our, our crew so that no one makes eye contact and they can stay, you know, really focused on the event itself. Next question. Next question is from Scott Mueller in Germantown, New York. And Scott asks, uh, not sure if I'm getting old or my attention span has been destroyed by social media reels, but 30 seconds into instructional, any instructional video on YouTube, my mind starts wandering. How do we produce content that will keep people's attention? Excellent question. Chris Fenwick is going to start us off here. Chris? Well, Scott, you are getting old. We're all getting old. My grandson's getting old. Uh, it's just a matter of how severe that oldness is, is setting in. Um, uh, I think the best way to keep people's attention is to respect their time. And I think that instructional videos quite often, and I'm super guilty of this, um, I, I have made um, instructional videos where like the number one, two, three, and ten comments is, get to the point. And, and I think that we, um, a lot of people uh, forget what the audience is actually looking for and they're more interested in what they want to say. Uh, but yeah, the 30, second, 30 seconds in and getting distracted means you're not getting what you wanted. Um, it also might mean, you know, you're multitasking and not paying attention. David Paskin. He had to bring in multitasking. Um, I would offer two suggestions. Uh, the first is to um, uh, give away the ending. Show what you're able to accomplish, wow people, so now they know 
I want to stick around and learn how to do this. And the second thing I would suggest is to start with, I have a problem and you do too. Here's, we're going to figure it out now. That's, those are excellent strategies for getting people to buy into the process. Alex? Yeah, I would give yourself about 15 seconds to get to the meat of what you're doing. Um, so th- that's the maximum out- outlay for, for what, you're gonna, what you're planning to do on a short video. The thing that a lot of us, a lot of people were trained to do was ask for subscriptions ahead of time. And then there's the old adage, tell them what you're going to tell them, then tell them, then tell them what they told you. You can't do that on YouTube. Um, you need to just start telling them what you're going to tell them. And one of the things that as we've been starting to work with some clients and as I start thinking about what we're going to do for office hours, um, one of the things we've been really focused on is I'm going to give you what you came for, what, whatever you searched for or whatever we showed up and whatever's in the thumbnail. I want to hand that to you in 90 seconds. You know, like in the in the first 90 seconds, I'm going to hand you the answer. I don't want, you know, and if you don't watch any more of it, you're going to go, wow, that was great. You know, and it's it's dense. It's graphic heavy. It is exactly what I want. You know, you're, you're going to walk away understanding that. Now, if you stay, I'm going to talk a little bit more about it. <laughs> you know, like I'm going to talk a little, you know, if you stay, I'm going to give you some more details about why that works. And if you stay a little bit longer, I might give you a little bit of the history and a little bit of extra stuff. So if you want to stay and, and, and get more out of it, there's more there to get. But the problem is most people put that into the front end because they're trying to get longer view times. Um, and what you need to do is make, I think that the, 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 a lot of folks that are working on YouTube videos right now are realizing that you just want people to get the payoff. They, they need to walk away from it. You know, you're competing with people who watch like on TikTok, if I see that long line and I calculate that it's more than a minute, I just move on to the next video. Like, I don't even, I, I just, I, I don't care what you're here to talk about. You've got a minute to do it. <laughs> you know, so, so the, um, uh, so I think that you really want to 60 to 90 seconds, you want to hand them the answer for what you're talking about and then keep on extra- extrapolating. If you've hooked them with the answer, keep on extrapolating so that you can give them more of the context. Jason. I got three words for you. Slay your darlings. No matter how well you think this should be um, and the the right way to answer a question, you know, cut it the best way you can and then look back at the traffic and see where people start paying attention to it and where they stop. Then cut the video again and resubmit it. Um, You know, resubmit it as the short version or the this question or the that question. And, um, I think you'll find that there there really is kind of a science to this, and um, it all starts with forgetting what you think you know. Chris Fenwick had as a return. That's fa- fascinating, Jason. I w- I would have never thought to go back and like bother to look at the analytics and then redo it. Uh, we call it "kill your babies, slay your darlings." Um, when I teach people how to edit, a lot of times I'll say, you know, here's a process. Go ahead and cut it. And now, and then they come back and they go, oh, look at my great thing. It's like, okay, great. Take four minutes out of that. What? Yeah, do it. Try it. Try to take, you know, cut it in half. Cut three minutes out, whatever it is. And when you when you push somebody, that's where your brain starts to really work, you know, like as an editor. It's like, hmm, what do I actually really need? And it's hard to do. It's really hard to do because, like, you, you'll listen to a sentence and you'll go, well, I, I have to have this sentence. Do you? Do you really have to have all of it? Is there a prepositional phrase in there? Is there extra, you know, uh, adjectives and stuff that don't need to be there? Do we need to reshoot? Quite possibly, you know. So um, cutting to the bone is really hard to do, but it's it keeps people's attention. 
So much so that one of my friends, <clears throat> one of my industry friends, Thomas Grove Carter, who's an editor at Trim Editing in London, uh, did an NAB demo on Final Cut. And what he did was he took work that he had done for huge companies. This is like BMW, and he did Ed Sheeran's music video for Castle on the Hill and things like that. But one of the t- tips he gave us is he took one of his 60-second key spots that he had done for, I think, BMW, and then he said, can I cut it to 30 And then he said, can I take the 30 and cut it to 15? And he does this constantly on his work. And what he's saying is, could I tell this story effectively in less time? So even at his level, where he's being paid to do these brilliant projects for huge companies, he's constantly challenging himself. Can I be more concise? Can I tell this story in fewer shots and still be effective? I took that away. And boy, the few times that I've used it in the past, it really does help you be more concise. Let's cut uh, to the next question. Next question is from John Nichols in Concord, California. And John asks, for a digital first event, what is the minimum viable setup for the presenters? I'm working on a scrappy version and a more robust version. David Paskin. Uh, well, I would I would start with uh, Lindsay's hierarchy of streaming um, that he's taught us a million times here. Um, start with your internet. Make sure you are plugged in. Do not rely on Wi-Fi. Second of all, focus on your audio. If you're not using an external uh, microphone, maybe pick up a Shure MV7 or something like that. Third, pay attention to your lighting. Even with a crummy camera, lighting can make a huge difference. Fourth, get a camera that's better than anything is going to be better than what's in your computer. Maybe it's your iPhone. Maybe it's the Insta360 link. And finally, focus on your background. Make sure it's not too distracting. Make sure that it's complementing what you're offering. Um, it doesn't take a lot of money to, um, to do what we're doing better. It just takes a little bit of time and energy and following uh, Lindsay's hierarchy of streaming. Maslow's pyramid's dead. It is now Lindsay's pyramid. <laughs> I am proclaiming that as of today, <laughs> Alex. Yeah, um, a couple. Let me get, show you a couple of examples, and we'll talk a little bit about what you can do. That that you know, sometimes you're gonna um, uh, you're gonna use the background. So here we have a subject that has that's in a mixing studio. They spend a lot of time in a studio, and so you're, you're you want to use that background there. Um, this is just minimum. You've got a monitor, you've got a camera that's there, some basic lighting um, that's going to pick them up. And that is enough for them to come in as a participant um, into that, you know, into that, um, that event. Uh, here is uh, another way to do it. So here is a background. So you can either use the green screen background or you can use a screen um, that's behind them. And then this is a teleprompter um, with the camera. So now they're going to look straight into that. They're going to have their computer. Now, this was before we put in, this is actually our insert studio in, or my old insert studio in, in um, D.C. And we eventually put this on a, a, a motorized uh both the monitor and the table were put on motorized systems so that we could move them up and down and adjust them in relationship to each other. The camera was sitting on what's called a hot pod, which allows us to move it up and down without having to mess with the legs. Um, Here you have a more robust one. So you're talking about, so now you have a group of people here and they're all looking at it. And this is where digital first starts to really take off is I can give you a bunch of information that's all sitting there in front of you that I could never do if I was doing it on stage. <laughs> this is way better than being on stage um, because I can now, you know, our, we're nestling our cameras into these gaps 
Um, we are, you know, we, we have all this lighting, but they have all this information. There's social, there's notes from the lawyers, there's all kinds of things that are there um, that are, you know, that, that make that actually work. Um, here's a more studio setting um, that you have here. So here's that, that background that I showed you here. You know, we've got our, our basic lighting. We're on shotgun mics here so that we can uh, make sure that that person uh, doesn't have to do anything. They only have to put an ear in. And in this case, they don't even have to put the ear in. You can see the speaker down there. So that speaker is hidden. And we're actually using the speaker as a, uh, we're using the person to block the mics from the speaker. So the speaker sits there and it's a, it's a, it's a big water block, you know, of, of that, of that there. And so, um, so, so they don't have to do anything um, to, to get in there. We have a backup, uh, these, this is just backup uh, lav. Um, but anyway, in this case, you have that, we left this open in this case so that we would get some up lighting. So that's just, instead of actually lighting them, we just um, simply let the, let the floor do the work for us as we, as we uh, moved it down the path. Um, but those are, you know, this is a great way, that's a point-to-point -point connection here. It can be as small as this. Here you can see, this is just a small monitor um, that's on these little, I used to make many, many kits with this. These are these little Matthews that mini, mini uh, grip uh, work. And so you can just build these little things that will hold these monitors wherever you want them. Again, taking advantage of the background um, and, and making sure that you can make it feel like it's part of whatever they're coming in from. So, you know, you, you can capture a lot more character when you go that direction. And I showed this one earlier where you're using PTZs and you're using, um, you know, multiple setups there. So there's a couple different ways for you to think about those. Um, you can make these a lot more robust, but when you think about that, when you see those multiple monitors, that's why digital, that's when digital first really makes a difference. And that teleprompter right in front of you. So now you're looking, eye lines are looking straight in. They're not looking down at the audience. They're not looking away. They're looking right at the digital audience and potentially the physical audience all at the same time. And for the psych students watching, I was not dissing Maslow. I was being silly. Uh, Jason Bache. Um, yeah, complete non sequitur. Alex, like me, is such an aural learner that he adores it when you make graphics on stuff that he uh, that he says. I did this one on the tank tread thing that he did a while ago. And he's like, wow, where did you get that? And I'm like, oh, I made it for you. He's like, ah, oh, cool, thanks. All right. Anyway, moving on. Next question is from Xander Snell in Miami. And Xander asks, Hello, panel. When recording a speaker, how do you convince them not to use a fully scripted text, but rather bullet points to make their speech flow better? Or do you? Thanks. David Paskin. I would uh, direct them to a presentation that I did a couple months ago and have them watch that because it was a disaster uh, and awful. And because I was reading, I had written a script and I was reading it. And it is obvious, not only to the participants, but when you watch it back, that I was not at all present with the people who were there. I was fully immersed in the words that I had written for myself. So I would show them examples. Alex? The hardest example that you can give someone uh, is um, to show them themselves. <laughs> like, you know, like, go ahead and watch. Let's watch this uh, together. And, and you know, we've done it a couple of times. It depends on where they are as far as an executive goes. If they're high enough up, I don't, you know, I, I will admit there's a little bit of emperor has no clothes. Like I'm just going to let them do their thing and do the best. We're going to get the best performance we can out of it and move on. Um, but if they're, if they're, if you think that you can, if they're open to coaching or you can give it to them, you sit down and look at it and you go, okay, well, you see what you did here and see how you're, you know, this is, and, and talk about why that's hard. It's hard to do it. Um, the very best speakers either memorize it or they use notes um, or a little bit of both. Um, but they, but doing, I will say that there are people who do teleprompting extremely well. They're usually actors or very, very professional speakers who do it 
hours and hours and hours a week. And they can look up there and, and they can, it's kind of like circular breathing in the sense that they can see those, that text coming in and speak at it while they're talking about it and add all the intonations that they need. It is about as hard as circular breathing. And so people think that, oh, I'm just going to do circular breathing. Well, you know, like that, that's a thing, you know, that takes practice. It takes work. And so the problem for executives most of the time is that they don't do that. And you can talk to the the issues that are related. A lot of times what we call it is the the teleprompter pentameter, you know, and so it's like an iambic pentameter, except there's a teleprompter pentameter. Um, and what that is, is that they can only do about one screen at a time. And so you'll see this even on the largest keynotes that we talk about. Um, you'll see this this teleprompter pentameter, which is that the um, that they will only say one thing and they'll come down in the, at every sentence. And the reason they're coming down at every sentence is because for, a, for them, they're practicing one page at a time and, and reading it out and not continuing it because they can't do that well. And so, so I think that it's, it's, it's pretty hard. For live, we really try to get past, past that as fast as we can. For, um, but for some scripted stuff, you know, the way to do this is the way a lot of YouTubers do it, which is you cut many, many, many. You do everything until you hit it just right. Um, but it's, a, it's, it's, it's hard to, to do it well. Jason? The example that I, I always give my clients is that using a teleprompter is like learning to play the piano. It, it takes about that long. If you think about, you know, someone who's been playing the piano for three months, that's how you're going to use a teleprompter if you're not accustomed to it. Um, so, you know, it doesn't matter how many times you've run through it. This is really just a matter of straight up rote practice. And some people will never be good at it. Just like, you know, I, I, I took piano lessons and I never got good at it. I agree 100% with everything that's been said there for so long. Uh, sometimes you give somebody a teleprompter and they just damages their presentation massively uh, because they just don't think that way and they come across as robotic and reading. And I, I agree with Alex that the people who can do it, it's kind of a specialized skill like being able to juggle really well. You either have spent the time to learn to do it properly or you're going to drop balls all over the place. And more important than that, I think the need for it sometimes comes out of a place of pure fear. It is that I'm going to forget what I'm saying, so I need the crutch of having all those words put in front of me so that I know they're there. But that is the opposite of how to get people to sound natural and consistent coming across on camera. Alex, you had a follow-up thought? Yeah, a lot of times people have this, this feeling like, well, these other corporations do it. Just remember that the other thing you want to outline is that most speakers at the, large, at the highest level are practicing, if they're doing this on stage, they're practicing two or three hours a week, a week, every week on this. And they're getting coached and they're getting processed, you know, they're, you know, for, for some of those. And if they don't, you can see it really quickly. And as soon as you start pointing out what the problems are, when you look at, you can, this is one way you can illustrate it for people. You can just start pointing out, here's what other people are doing. See how that feels flat. See how that feels cardboard. See how that feels. And what you'll do is you'll make, you'll terrify people <laughs> from, from doing it because they'll be afraid that they're going to do that. And they'll see it in their own performances later if they look at them. A lot of presenters try not to. A lot of corporate presenters just do it and they never want to see the video because they don't want to think about it. Next question. Next question is from Chris Fenwick in Emeryville, California. And uh, and Chris asks, did anyone watch the SpaceX launch and notice the little mixers on the desk of the talent? Mickey found it. Can we discuss? And he's got a link. 
Yeah, hopefully we'll be able to see it. John Preto noticed it. After hanging out with Fenwick for three years, I thought the same thing at five this morning when I would watch, and I'm like, what are these giant things in front of them? They don't look like computers. They look like intercoms to me. So I guess I was right. There's a picture somewhere in the grid. Hopefully that's being sent yeah, out that, so people can see my, it. That's my feed. Oh, um, there you go, Chris. Yeah, it just turns out. So I, I texted Mickey because I knew he'd be up uh, Manila, and um, he found it. It's an RTS um, intercom uh, station. And uh, it's kind of cool. I, I don't know if the people, if uh, I don't know how the signal gets to from there to their earbuds or what they're actually doing, but I, it is appear, it does appear to be a Dante um, device. And uh, I, I, I'm reticent to advance forward. I have a picture of the thing, but there was a comment in Mukana about it being on a very bright background. So, yeah. Uh, oh, sorry. I, I didn't put my no, go ahead. post mode. Um, yeah. So, so the um, can I show it, Alex? Can I advance forward? Yeah, yeah. So I started to edit that one, but that that's the back of the thing, and then there's the front of it. Very, uh, very featured laden device. Interesting. Uh, and then here they're showing how you can you know you set up the atom, and you have these controllers. So what I what I don't see in the picture from the from the event is what is their intercom actually plugged into? Because it looks like a power cord and an ethernet cable is the only things plugged into that thing. And I don't see any cables across the desk up to their ears, but I just thought it was kind of fun. So you're assuming the ethernet is pulling it out and that they're somehow signal patching it from there. Well, the, it, the, the it says in, it says on the webpage about the thing. Uh, what is it? It's the DKP four zero one six DKP four zero one six for those playing at home. Uh, it it says that it's a Dante enabled uh, intercom connectivity uh, uh, control panel. So, so oh, yeah, so how it actually gets up into your ear, I don't know, but uh, it was a it was a fun little distraction that I was that I. Nice. And Alex I has a last thought. Yeah. If you have, um, if you have da a Dante interaction, it can actually be managing all of those things, but you're, you could have another pickup somewhere on the other side of the table that is receiving that Dante and sending that Dante. So you wouldn't have to wire it directly into the box. The box could man just be managing it. So you have the buttons and you want to manage that and you can be turning them on and off, but it's in and out could be controlled by, you know, controlled to another device. Um, I still think that inside of all of this, I would, uh, I, I would never put that much in front of a presenter. It's way too many things to think about. I mean, the big thing you have to fight all the time in these situations is the presenter having too many things to think about. You know, even a, an experienced one, ha having two minds is the is the killer. You know, like, and, and you know, it's why, I mean, a lot of the SpaceX launches are pretty uh, flat. You know, so so, <laughs> and it's because they're not thinking about those things, um, you know, and so they're they're pretty boring because they, they they you know and just feel very rough around the edges, and it's mostly just from, I mean, a lot of it is kind of just poor poor design, um, you know, in in how they manage their talent, but but this is a good example of that. I would never put that up. That that's way too complicated to put in front of a uh, someone who's just doing presenting. I mean, if you look at the complexity of what they're doing, they don't need that many channels. And so um, what, what I would put there is one of the announcer consoles from uh, Studio Technologies, also Dante-related. Um, you can have up to, I think, three or four different comm channels, but they're really simple. And that's all the, the only buttons that you see. And, then, and when you push one of them, it automatically turns the other ones off. And that's what I have here. I have a little 205. And if I 
just all I did was push back on the talk back and, and it's gone, you know? And so it's much simpler. It's much easier to manage. And um, I, I'm going to guess that the production company that did this didn't, don't, probably doesn't even know that studio technologies exists because they would never put an RTS intercom system on a desk if they did. You don't think NASA's doing product placement, do you? Uh, Chris Fennick, he had a thought? <laughs> yeah. Uh, Alex, by the way, d- did you by any chance catch any of our discussion before the show about multitasking? Uh, no, I, don't I, go I, there. <laughs> I, I'm just curious. If you say. Uh, so um, I would agree it's probably too much stuff, and uh, I might have to learn this Dante thing. All right. Let's go to the next question. Uh, next question is, uh, is there, is from Tony Mobley in Noonan, Georgia. And Tony asks, is there a way to create a digital courtroom for a house of worship skit? David Paskin. I hope I'm not misunderstanding the question, but I mean, certainly you could use a virtual background of some sorts. Um, I know that I have worked with uh, a few judges and magistrates, and when they go into Zoom court, they have their official virtual background up. And it annoys me every time, but it feels like I'm in court. Alex? Yeah, you can, I mean, uh, if, if you look at um, uh, TurboSquid, you can download lots of things that are there and render them out and find somebody to render something out like that. And that'll help build your background as well. So um, there's a lot of ways to kind of put that together. There's lots of courtrooms that are pre-built <laughs> that you could use if you wanted to. Next question. Next question is from Douglas Carmichael, and Douglas asks, has anyone had experience with the Ross Graphite system? It looks like a grown-up TriCaster and is and a useful entry point to the higher-end world. Yeah, and there's a link there. Uh, Ross's Graphite system was a topic of discussion here on Office Hours a ways back. I don't remember exactly what show on it. Alex, do you remember? Uh, I I don't I don't remember that I we have worked with them they're very powerful <laughs> so it you know when you start spending more money on a switcher you start ending up with a lot more features I, I wouldn't say that it's a grown up uh, tricaster I'd probably say it's more of a grown up ATEM um, because it's much it operates much more like an ATEM than a than a tricaster um, depending on what features you put into it uh, but it is it, it's night and day between the two so I, I wouldn't I wouldn't really they barely fit into the same um, definition Chris Fenwick. I've switched on the Ross switchers. They're they're good. And if you're on the fence between Ross and NewTek, I would recommend that you reach out to Doug Ferguson on the on Discord because he's quite opinionated and uh, he'll never touch another NewTek again. <laughs> yeah, Doug Doug Ferguson and uh, Jeff Keithley are the two Office Hours regulars who have vast amounts of experience in doing this kind of show switching in the field. And Next question. Opinions. Yeah, different opinions. Yeah, that's right. Next question. Uh, next question is from Paul Terry Wallace uh, in uh, Austin, Texas. And Paul asks, uh, Elon Musk wants to build a chat GPT rival led by the recently departed Igor Babushkin, uh, who left Alphabet's deep mind. Comment. Ooh, John Preto. So last night, Tesla had their investor day. It was a three and a half hour extravaganza. So Tesla has in the top 10 of a uh, AI instance build out because they're capturing right now they have 30 petabytes of imagery and they say that that's going to quadruple in the next two years. But that infrastructure, they've got their own um, board called Dojo for processing AI. And the robot's going to use the same AI that the cars are. And so having all this infrastructure is going to lend them the ability to have a chat GPT-like product. And I'm sure he's going to integrate that into Twitter. 
And don't forget, you. this entire conversation is being driven by you folks. So uh, as you ask questions, and more importantly, vote on the questions, that determines how long we spend on each question and uh, how soon it gets handled in the discussion. So make sure that you're voting as much as possible and uh, continue to ask these excellent questions. Let's go on to the next one. Next question is from Douglas Carmichael. When programming larger lighting systems, arena, uh, arenas and stadiums, for example, how do you make the pre-visualization and programming process more efficient despite having a large number of physical instruments? You know, people who program lighting, and we're lucky enough to have had uh, friends like Tlaluk Lopez-Waterman here who does a lot of stage lighting design and things like that. Uh, these systems, then the people who operate them are highly complex, but Alex will have some thoughts on, on how it works. Alex? Yeah, it depends on, on what you're building. So a lot of these things are, are basically modeled, whether it's SolidWorks or, or a lot of other things. They're, they're actually built 3D models, and they can simulate them. They have simulators for most of those things that will simulate the lighting, simulate the effects, simulate all of those bits and pieces within the arena. And they have a pretty, they're pretty close to how it's going to actually work. Uh, at first, the first thing that happens is they do it inside of these things. They, have, they, they build decks of this is what it's going to look like. And the companies that do this, we're going to try to bring one of them on. Uh, I was just just in meetings with one of them that does a lot of the really, really big shows. And they have they have artists that that say that visualize it and they're very good at it. It's funny, when they start thinking about these things, they have to think about trucks. And this is a conversation we got into. It was like he 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 was showing me this lighting rig and he says, Well, it fits into it fits into two two trucks. Like you have to think about like if you make it a little too wide or a little too long, it now doesn't fit into the trucks and has to be broken down and that costs money. You know, and, and so when you're renting the truck for a whole tour, they think about these things. And so so they have people who are thinking about the logistics as at the same time that they're thinking about the lighting and how it looks. From there, they oftentimes will go somewhere and figure it out. The most popular place in the United States for that is a place called Rockletts. Um, so, um, they in Rockletts, they will, um, you know, they actually have warehouses the size of the stage, <laughs> so so or bigger or and bigger than the stage, where they can lay all those things out, see how they're going to work, and even rehearse a lot of those bits and pieces. So, um, so those are the um, you know, those are some of the things that 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 they do to make sure that they do it. So, for the largest ones that are going to go on tour for a while, they usually rehearse them somewhere. And again, Rockletts is probably the most popular one right now. Um, and then, but but before all of that, they're going to visualize it first in Photoshop, then in 3D, and then in you know then in simulators. Yeah, you know, it was interesting for me. I did a session once in one of my large corporate clients about, oh, they called it efficient assortment, but part of that was shipping and how things are done. And sometimes, you know, you get that box that's four inches by three inches by two inches, and you're going, it just got a little tiny thing in it. Why is it that size? But there are people up and down the supply chain looking at how many fit into a carton, how many of those cartons fit into a whatever, and then you get all the way up to shipping containers. And what is the most efficient way to pack a shipping container to get it across the ocean with products? It's really an interesting kind of science of distributing things across the world. Chris, you had a thought? Yeah, truck pack... Um philosophy and design is super interesting. You have 30 by 30 cubes, you have 30 by 45s, 90 by, and the, and there are, at least in the United States, there are a couple of standard truck widths. Uh, one of them is uh, like 90 and change because that's why 330s go across it. And so, yeah, um, uh, I did a video years ago uh, about a, a company called Tate, and, and they are Tate... Uh, TateTowers.com, I believe. And uh, they'll... Tate. 
Tate's it. Tate's it. Lock, rock Lidditz. <laughs> okay. So. T-I-T-A-I-T. Yeah. And so anyway, they they build and tear down the whole thing and they design it to so that um, stagehands on location can follow the instructions that are on the lid as they're pushing the box into the venue. And Tate, so it, Tate, Tate and Claire um, are, are the Claire two brothers. Big company. Yeah, the Claire brothers. They're, that they built Rock Lidditz. <laughs> yeah. So that's what that's how they that's where they set it all up. That's how they design it. That's how they rehearse it. There's they they have a whole campus there. That, that's there. The, the video so the, that we did was them building a, a set for um, uh, John Bon Jovi, and it's some great B-roll. Really. Yeah. Good so just to bring stuff. it back to the question and answer it, there's a ton of work behind the scenes that go into all of these pieces of the load in for a big show because efficiency is everything. You, everybody needs to know exactly where every single piece of this is down to the smallest connector required to patch this cable into that board. Let's go to the next question. Next question is from uh, Bobby Grandon in Westbury. He says, does anyone use an app uh, for Zoom teleprompter like Vodium? I thought it worked well, but my boss, not so much. David Paskin, are you familiar with that? Well, now that, now that we've had a whole discussion about why we shouldn't really rely on teleprompters, um, or at least for our full script. So Vodium, uh, I haven't used it. It does look interesting, although I have to say I'm not sure how it's any different than any other teleprompter app for the Mac, for example. Um, basically, it sits, it, it locks itself to right under your, um, your computer's camera, which means if you're using a, another camera, it's not going to be much help, it seems. Um, and it has a semi-transparent background. Um, I, when I do use a teleprompter, I use teleprompter premium, premium plus, excuse me. And again, you can adjust the transparency background so that I can, but I can also decide where I want to put it. So I can move it to right on top of my Zoom uh, gallery uh, so that I can see the folks underneath while I'm speaking. Alex? Yep. Yeah, uh I'd really recommend a teleprompter if you're going to use a teleprompter. <laughs> so the, 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 I don't think that those are going to work that well. As far as software goes, uh, a prompter, prompt smart is one that will follow along without an operator. It'll just kind of pop up and it'll be, it's listening to your audio and it's just moving along. It's not as good as a human, but it's better than nothing if you're trying to do it by yourself. I find it easier to use prompt smart than it is to use a foot pedal. And the reason for that is that the foot pedal creates two minds. And until you do a lot of it, it's, it still becomes this thing. And so Prompt Smart will just sit there and just listen to you. And it'll, it'll pop up uh, not smoothly. But if you get, once you get used to it, um, you can do a pretty good job. Uh, Chris Fenwick. Yeah, this is one of those areas where technology tries to replace humans and it, uh, you know, it does an okay job. Uh, I, what we do is we just log on another person. And we turn, we use a little OBS to turn their screen into a camera and we pipe that into the Zoom meeting. We'll coach the people that need to be able to read the prompter how to make it bigger and get it as close to their lens as possible. Yes, Alex, it would be great if it was in an actual prompter right in front of the lens. Uh, but then, but now you have a human being who can follow along, make adjustments, pause when they get lost, uh, jump ahead if they jump ahead. Uh, and there's no replacing a really skilled teleprompter operator. I have a friend who, who used to travel. Uh, uh, there was a certain politician a couple of presidents ago who was known as really being really good on a teleprompter. And he was his guy. Traveled with him all over during campaigns and all kinds of stuff. It was, it was a pretty good gig for him. 
Yeah, and we diss them occasionally because they can turn an executive into a robot. But sometimes, and I've had circumstances where the legal department says, you must say these words in exactly this order. There is no deviating from anything, including the A's, A's, and the's. And so word for word, it must be done. And that's where a teleprompter really helps. And the only thing I'll say there is if it has to be done word for word in today's technology, you should record it. Like, you know, like, like, you know, I don't think that you should do a live delivery of mission critical text ever again. Like, it just doesn't make any sense anymore. No one wants to watch you talk on stage like a cardboard. No one, when you, when you record it, you can do it on a teleprompter. You can cut it a thousand different ways so it's nice and tight. But no one wants to watch video unless you, unless you split, you spend an enormous amount of time on it. Do not present for more than five minutes unless you are going to spend millions on your production. You know, um, you know, live. It just doesn't, you know, five or ten minutes is kind of your outer edge unless you, unless it's really, really good or it's very, very vertical. But, you know, it's just you really want to keep on figuring out how to interact with the audience if you're live or just give people a video. Next question. Next question is from Douglas Carmichael. And Douglas asks, Alex, you mentioned that the 14-inch MacBook Pro uh, would be a toy for most professional workflows. What would you suggest for a portable device that would be a useful creative sketch pad for building ideas for music, media, et cetera, while mobile? Jason Bache. Not unsurprisingly, I'm going to go with the 16-inch MacBook Pro. Exactly the same thing. Bigger case, better airflow, and um, it just fits better in your lap. Uh, I will note that my wife uses a smaller MacBook Pro, but she has delicate fingers, beautiful fingers, but delicate. And so she's comfortable on the 14-inch. I am not. Without at least a 16, my fat fingers do not work at all. Next question. Next question is from Kenny Hampton, and Kenny asks, building SDI cables in XF excess of 100 feet. Please remind the preferred brand model of bulk cable and the style of end connectors. Vendor info appreciated. Tools needed for the chosen brand. My use is for outdoor events and not installation. Yeah, I think most of the SDI cables and the connectors, I don't think indoor and outdoor is a big deal and a part of that. I know Alex has very strict opinions about this. So Alex, tell us. Yeah, so you want the um, you want the reverse twist. These are the Neutrik reverse twist uh, termination. It will cost a little bit more. It's like an extra dollar a connector, or a seventy five cents connector, and worth every penny. So the rear twist um, cables are the ones that we've talked about in the past, um, and that just means that you can have a forty by forty router and stick your finger in there and open them up. The big thing is is that when you start using the old fashioned uh, SDI termination, you're going to end up in a dense situation where you're using what's called a trumpeter. Um, and the trumpeter will is adding leverage to it, and it's reducing the the, the, the how long your equipment will last. <laughs> so so anyway, so um, you wanted to be able to do it by hand, um, and you want to be able to do it with your fingers, and you can color code all of those all those boots. And so now you can do what I use resistor codes. Other people use a lot of other things, but it's just it's it is so much better. I won't build cables without that without the reverse the Neutrik reverse twist um, SDI cables. We use these with 24-gauge Clark cables. I think they're 12G cables, and I can't think of the na name of them. They don't, ours, if you're going to run longer, you may need to get larger ones, and you can get both these connectors and for, for uh, or thicker cables. You may want to go to a, a, a higher gauge for 100 feet um, to make those work. Ours will work that way, but you have to be pretty careful about it. Um, we use Coastal Tools, uh, makes a motorized, you can get a, a basically a hand stripper or a hand um uh, cutter that kind of you just kind of grab onto the cable, you put it on, and you wrap it around it, and it'll pull it apart. But the coastal cable uh, wire cut, you know, um, shield cutters are way better. And what you can do is you can take, you can tell them this is. In fact, you can send it to them, or you can tell them this is the cable 
and the and the termination that I'm using, and they will send you back the calibration that you need for your for your cutter. And then you just put it in. It's got to cut it in three different lengths, uh, three different thicknesses across it, and it'll just do it automatically. Push it in, push a button, open it up, and then you pull it out. I use um, to pull the shield off. I use something that is going to be not metal, and I, this is actually what I use um, specifically. And you can sit there and just and just pull the. You're gonna there's a um, a, a plastic piece that you pull off there to, to, to get that off. And you, you just don't want to mess with the shield. Um, and then you're going to pinch the shield so that it opens and then put it in. And then you need a crimper. I don't, I don't have a specific crimper that I use, um, but those are things to think about when you're building those. Next question. Next question is from Morgan Price in Victoria, British Columbia. And Morgan asks, Morning, what SDI camera would you recommend to connect into a deck link to bring in video into Unreal? I am wanting to experiment with the virtual backgrounds and the uh, Blackmagic uh, cinema cameras are HDMI only. Jason Bates will help us out. Jason? So I'll, re- I'll remind you that you can get the 12, um, the 12G SDI HDMI, you know, double-ended um, duo, and it, it will allow you to just very quickly use the cinema camera. But uh, if you want an SDI dedicated I've had good luck with the uh, cinema camera, micro cinema camera 4K. It's tiny, tiny little, uh, as long as you've got uh, an MFT lens for it. Alex? Uh, yeah, the, um, the, the, micro, the micro studio is a great one. You can also just convert the HDMI. To, and the cheapest way, if you've already got a, a Blackmagic cinema camera, is just the HDMI to STI. Well, next question. Our next question is from Gordon Lake uh, in Los Angeles, California. Sennheiser wireless ENG lav mics are above $600. Is there anything below that price point um, that is not a major compromise? Jason, suggestions? No, not, not, not really. I hate to be a snob, but, but <laughs> seriously, no, not really. I like the plug-on transmitter instead of those dedicated microphones because it gives you more freedom as to which microphone you use, and the preamp is pretty good on the plug-on. But... Uh, I'm I'm sorry, no. Alex? Yeah, I mean, it just depends on what you're using it for. It depends on how far away you are. It depends on how mission critical it is. So if you're doing a record where you're going to walk around and you can record it again if it didn't work, if you're not going to be very far from the camera, you can get away with all kinds of things. Rode makes one. Um, uh, DJI makes a great one. There's a lot of different, these small um, ba- uh, 2.4 and 5 uh, gigahertz um, packs that will work relatively well. You want to put that, that transmitter subtly in the front rather than the back. Uh, you want to do a couple things like that to, to, to make that work, but you can definitely make those work. And those are in the two or $300 range. But as Jason said, once you start getting serious and once you're doing live, you're going to want to start spending more money. Yeah, it gets complicated for wireless. Next question. Next question is from Douglas Carmichael. And Douglas asks, in my SoundGrid studio system, I have inserted Waves NX in the headphone path processed on the server. Would SoundDesk be a useful software substitute for managing my monitor path? It's been talked about a good little bit here. I don't have any experience with it personally, and I don't think we've had anybody in the panel today who has raised a hand. Oh, Jason, do you have a thought about it? Um, I'm not going to tell you yes or no specifically for that application. I would start with Audio Hijack because it is so visual and so easy to understand. And then, you know, see if you still need the have a need for anything else. There you go. Next question. Next question is from Tony Mobley. And, and Tony asks, uh, can Rabbi uh, David Paskin give an overview of socialstream.ninja? 
That would be exciting. David? I can, but not in a minute and a half. So I'll just very quickly tell you, uh, socialstream.ninja created by uh, the same gentleman who did video.ninja, um, it's a way to, it's an ingest point for uh, comments and chat from, I use it for Zoom, YouTube, all the, almost any platform you can possibly imagine. It is a Chrome plugin. So you just, um, uh, um, put that plugin in, it will automatically grab any chat messages that are coming through in that browser. And then you can um, stylize them however you want. Um, this is um, the extension here. Um, in order to install this, you'll need to turn on developer mode. And then in order to use it, you'll need to join Zoom from uh, the desktop, uh, excuse me, from the browser uh, in at least one instance. So um, you can see here, I've got a, um, this is not in this meeting, this is an old meeting. Um, but if I go ahead and trigger one of these messages, you'll see it pop up at the bottom there. And I've stylized it with my brand colors and things like that. Um, you can turn on auto. So if you know the folks that are in your meeting and you trust the chat messages, you can just have them popping up um, as you go, uh, or you can do it moderated. It's incredibly powerful. I'm really having a lot of fun with it. Nice. Next question. Next question is from Douglas Carmichael as well. And Douglas asks, the Ross Graphite system not only includes a Carbonite switcher, but also an expression graphics engine along with the, the clip management and audio mixing. Could a system like Graphite be used for bringing a private school into the streaming world? Alex Lindsay. It's probably not where I'd start. <laughs> so that you're, you're basically going to the grocery store with an M1 tank. And so, so I think that I wouldn't, I probably wouldn't start with that cost and that complexity. We saw... Uh, a couple of studios that we worked with put these Ross Graphite systems in, and without a specialized TD, uh, they are much more complicated to run than something that's much more simple. If I was looking at um, doing something for a private school, I would definitely be in the ATEM land. You know, if, you know, I'd look at either ATEM Minis, ATEM Mini Extremes, Tuamies, Formies, all those things. You can buy a host of them uh, for the same price as the graphite, as the Ross graphite. The Ross graphite for what it's designed for is perfect. Um, but would I put that into a private school? Uh, probably not because the the ramp up time, you, you're much better off with way more switchers that everybody knows that are relatively simple to produce content and then build up. Now, if that program became really successful, maybe you build a studio that has a Ross Graphite system in it. Um, but I wouldn't necessarily, I wouldn't start there. You'll have an enormous amount of trouble because you only have one switcher, you only have one access. So you have eight switchers, you have everybody learning how to do it, doing lots of little events, feeding to each other, all those things. And now you're building, you, you really need to build, especially for a school, a group of people, um, a, you know, kind of an environment of editors. And I think you'd be much better off with more small switchers than one big one. Good advice. Next question. Next question is uh, from Te Paul Terry Wallace. And Paul asks, uh, what is the flow pattern between the Squares TV apps on the Mac M2, iPhone, and iPad? The apps are Shoot, VPC, uh, Video Pencil, Squares TV, and BeatSheet with the output to and, and control of Ecamm, OBS, and Memo Live. Um, see Lincoln Chen. David Paskin again. David, excellent. Yeah, so this is a diagram created by Michael. Um, it, it, uh, to me, it's a bit all, all over the place, but in short, here's the idea, I think. Um, if you're using Shoot as your camera, you can control Shoot from a remote browser, that's squares.tv down here. Um, you can, uh, I didn't mean to pump in like that. I'm not sure why that happened. Um, you can... Uh, um, send that 
into Video Pencil via NDI in your iPad. You can then telestrate on that. That feed goes to Video Pencil Camera, which becomes your um, webcam essentially out to um, uh, either out directly to Zoom or you can grab it from there and bring it into um, Ecamm, OBS, or any of those. Uh, BeatSheet is a tool to actually control those different um, services, Ecamm, OBS, things like that, because what it allows you to do is basically create a run of show, that, tr and each run of show triggers different scenes in those different um, applications. Interesting. Uh, complex, but it looks like a workable workflow. Next question. Next question is from Paul Terry Wallace, and uh, and Paul asks again, uh, what is ex what I Meta is experimenting with AI powered chat on WhatsApp and Messenger? How will this work? John Preto. So any any sort of app that allows you to 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 compose texts will have AI in it eventually, and so you'll have some sort of switch like you do in Midjourney, where you do slash imagine it will be slash script or slash something. And then you'll type in what you want it to write, and it will write that paragraph for you. Or it will summarize something that you've written already, or it will grammar check whatever you've written. So that, that's a no-brainer on integration. Next question, which is the most exciting question I've seen in years <laughs> here at Office from, Hours. <laughs> next question is from Fabian Santiago from Vernon, New Jersey. Uh, and uh, Fabian asks, so where does Alex get his glasses Uh Inquiring minds I, want to know some op, some optometry store in in uh, I went and had my eyes checked and they wasn't very big it wasn't like a lens crafters or something it was a tiny little one there were probably three glasses that I liked and I picked one of them and I took pictures I sent them to my wife I said which ones should I do and 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 um and then she she told me which ones that that I should get and um might have sent to a couple other people and and anyway but uh, and got some and this is I think um rag and bone so I didn't I didn't have any I didn't know what the I didn't know what the what, what it was when I bought it. It was just like the glasses that worked. <laughs> so, I think the algorithm look worked. There, they look great. Shark. <laughs> Sorry, look, Alex, look down there. There's a shark. You just jumped over it. Oh. <laughs> anyway, well, Fabian, thank you for the question. Let's go to the next one. Uh, next question is uh, Paul Terry Wallace in Austin, Texas. Uh, what one thing do you do the best, and what other things um, that you do compete with this? Oh, this is an interesting question. So I guess he's asking everybody, what do you do well? And uh, let's start with David Paskin. I've said about myself for years that I actually don't do anything really well. I do lots of things kind of well. And, and I've actually found that to be to really work for me. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm not a huge technologist, but I love playing and learning about technology. I'm not a rock star, but I love music and I play and I create music. I'm not the chief rabbi of whatever. I'm just a little guy that tries to inspire people. And so I'm not sure that there's anything that I do best. I try and do lots of things well. Alex Lindsay. I think a lot of us on this panel, especially the ones that come every day, are like David. <laughs> and I think that that's part of what we, why we're generalists to some degree, is that that we um, look at that. I think that the thing that I probably do best is that I am able to build unique pipelines for specific issues. You know, so I'm, and that's been the, when I was a kid, I did but the unique solutions. You know, like I see something and I'm good at building bespoke solutions in many, many worlds um, of of how to solve that problem, especially if you let me do it a couple of times, I'll just get better and better and better at it. But um, I think that that's, that's probably my own 
kind of my only skill. <laughs> the rest of it, the rest of it, I just try to survive. <laughs> Jason Bache. All right, I'll take a stab at this. Uh, what I do well is explaining things. If I don't understand it, uh, if I can't explain it, then I don't understand it. It's kind of one of my you know phrases to live by. What I do to compete with that is that I also need to make things profitable. So like the combination of the two sometimes can interfere with each other. But when people actually start to understand things, they actually, you know, as an evolution thing, tend to go hand in hand once you get that right. Alex, yeah, I, I, follow up. Yeah, we have a minute. Hey, Jason, you're in a new place. Where is it? Where, where are you? Is this a part of the set? <laughs> you just it, figured that out. Um, yeah, it's, a, the it's um, the, the new studio is finally taking shape. I, I made the mistake mm -hmm. of, of trying to do that on OWC Day last Friday. Right. But, um, you know, I'm cleaning up the lighting. This, of course, is a little bit too bright. But, yeah. you know, I'm, I'm still playing around with the panels. But, yeah, new studio. Yeah, very good. Nice. Um, on that last thing, by the way, I've done voiceover since I was a kid, literally 17, I think I got my first professional job. And even though I've been doing it for a long time and I think I, I know a lot of skills, I recently got into a different genre and I found that I was starting back over again. So no matter how good you are at anything, I think you change a little bit. It's like Michael Jordan being a great basketball player uh, and then baseball. All right, it's the top of the hour, and that means it's time for us to move on to our second hour discussion today. And today we are going to be talking about video production in the field. We're going to be talking about going into offices specifically, and what are some of the, the specific things when you're... Uh, when you land your first shooting jobs and or if you're just interested in making videos for people, some of the early clients you have are often small businesses and you end up maybe in uh, the sales office or in a CEO office or something like that of a small company. And there are specific things about those kinds of shoots. First and foremost, it is not a dedicated stage or anything like it. So you have to bring in all the equipment. You have to figure out how to light, how to set up and listen to and understand the sound profile of the room. You have to figure out what your lensing solution will be. Even if it's a zoom lens, you have to know, will this cover a shot that will work for the piece that I'm producing? And then you have all the, the secondary things like in offices, there's things like HVAC systems, and you may not be have instant control over the sound of a, of a an AC unit that'll come on in the middle of your shoot. So there's just a whole bunch of generic problems. And I do think it's a really good training ground for making videos early in your career because you will come across these things. You know, you will find that you're right next door to the uh, employee lounge and there's a refrigerator in there and the refrigerator's making noise. And so you've got to figure out who to call. Can we get this refrigerator off for a little bit? These are very common production problems that you're going to run into your, through your entire career. So it's a, I think a really good test bed for learning how well you can do remote production. Uh, let's go around the panel a little bit. I know there are a lot of people here who have practiced this kind of thing in the past, and I think I'm interested in finding out what Alex has, has run across in his practice. Yeah, and, and beyond. I mean, I've worked for most size companies, and we end up with an office shoots at all size companies, <laughs> so, so um, where a lot of it has to do with convenience as well. So you have a you have a um, either they want the look, they want the look like you're in their studio in their office, or that 
sometimes the CEO just doesn't want to go anywhere. Like they're busy there in a lot of meetings. They want to come out, do the hit and leave, you know? And, and so there, a lot of times you're building around that. So you're finding a conference room, you're finding a, um, a location that you can make it work. The thing you have to be careful about when you start shooting in offices, and I've probably done a couple hundred shoots in offices, is the first thing you worry about is load-in. <laughs> like, how are you going to get to that office and what can you bring? Are there stairs? Are there elevators? How big is the elevator? How are you going to get your gear off? So is the, are you going are you going to land on the ground is there a loading dock does there, does your truck have to be loading dock height does it have you know depending on how much gear you're bringing in all those things start to you know, so you, i i look at and when i start taking pictures of a before i go to do an office shoot i am i am walking through where do i park my car or truck where do i put things where do i go how do i get in what am i going to have to go through where are the doors what are the, what is the security for those doors how are the, how am i going to look at that so all of those things become something that's important is that walkthrough. Um, so you definitely, for an office, you rarely want to show just show up and shoot. You know, you want to you want to do a walkthrough. You want to see what it looks like. You want to see where the outlets are. So how much power do I have? You want to ask them things like how many, uh, you know, how, what outlets are on what circuit? And if they don't know, you want to find out. <laughs> like, are these on the same circuit? Are these, these 15 amp, what we typically call 15 amp Edisons? And how many of those circuits do you have available to the room? And if you don't, where is the next circuit? <laughs> like, you know, like, so, because when you start bringing in lighting, this has become less important, but as you start doing lighting, you start asking these questions in the walkthrough. Is there another circuit down the hall? And they'll say, well, it's like 50 feet away. I'm like, well, I got, I got an extension cord. <laughs> you know, like I can, I can, I can bring the power over. So, so you want to think about those things. Also related to that is think about your, your um, UPSs. If you're doing this, you do not want to try to find a time, you know, um, you don't want to try to, I always think of the the shot from True Lies where the guy's trying to take the video camera of the terrorist and he's like, batteries, Aziz. And you all, you never want to have your stuff run out of power while the executive is, and have anything go wrong while the executive's there. Um, so other things to think about is how reflective is the is the room that they're giving you. So you go into a conference room and you'll see it. And number one is you got to say, can I move the table? And usually that's the big thing is like, I want to move the table somewhere else, preferably out of the room. Um, uh, we definitely are not, I'm not shy about, moving things, you know, like I just make, I request that I can move them, but I don't, but I will move everything in the room to get the shot that I want. You know, like if, if they let me move things around, I'm going to rearrange the entire office. We'll put it all back. Quick note. Um, this is just standard trade craft, uh, is take a picture before you start moving stuff. <laughs> Cause you want to put it one sign of a refined, uh, production crew is they will come, they will rearrange your entire office. And when they leave, Everything down to the pencils will be exactly where it was before. And then people know that you mean business, like that you know what you're doing. So you take those pictures, you look at those things. Other things to think about in an office space, we bring a lot of duvetine and blankets. We will not put any hard thing or pretty much anything on a surface, on a hard surface of a client for a client on their tape, on their desks, on other things like that. They'll, whether you scratch the surface or not, they will think about it. And if there's any scratch after you leave, they will blame you for it. So you, you lay down, you lay down your, your blankets, you lay down your, your pieces there. The other thing is don't let any of your equipment touch the walls. So we always have it. We want, everything needs to be three inches from the walls. Things to think about. I'm, I know I'm talking about things that are non-creative, but these are the things that corporate will make a decision about whether they're going to call you back based on what I'm talking about right now rarely what actually happens in front of the camera um, uh, because they make a bunch of decisions about whether you're tidy or not. We come in, um, I don't come in in suitcases. We come in with Pelican cases. We come in in order. We, we line the cases up very specifically. We 
keep them exactly three inches from the wall. When we open everything up, everything is organized in the way that we need it. We know where those things are. We've already set it up once at the office so that we know how we're at our office or whatever, so that we know how we're going to put it together. Um, and we and we align through all of those things. Um, think about whether you, how many C-stands you need because you have to lift blankets. A lot of times we cover half the office with blankets. The, the, the part of the office that is not... Um, we're hanging blankets everywhere to try to suck up as much of the um, a, uh, as much of the sound as you can. So those are things that we think about as we start to roll roll into those things. They will always want to give you less time than you need. Um, I won't. I generally won't do an interview that I have less than four hours to set up for. Like I just, I'm just like you need to find somebody else. <laughs> like, you know, like I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna do that because I just it it it, it takes four hours. You know, it, does it take four hours? No, it takes forty five minutes. Like it t- if everything works well from the time you walk, from the time you hit the front of the door, you can be set up if you're organized in 45 minutes, but that's not what you want to build towards. You want to build towards uh, four hours because you set up in 45 minutes to an hour or you have a problem with getting in or you have a, you know, a situation that you have to deal with and you, you go back and forth and you work all through, through all of those things and you build all these safety measures into your process so that you're able to um, load in effectively. Um, once you get into that, um, then the question is, is are you are you interviewing them or someone else interviewing them? So they, do they have someone they want to do the interview? Do they have hits that they have to make? And and the main thing there is that a lot of times we try to, we don't want them to be in the room. We want to use, it used to be Hangouts, now Zoom, put them into a teleprompter and have them, you can either put the next to it if they want the old old, old way of doing things. <laughs> the old way of doing things is, is the person being interviewed looking off camera. And the new way of doing things is the Interatron. And we're used to it because of Zoom. Everybody's used to looking right into the camera. And so Interatron is kind of the the new way. And that's what you see in TikTok. That's what you see in YouTube. That's what you see in a lot of you know current interviews. The old-fashioned way to do it um, is the, to have them looking to the side of the camera. Um, and so, so anyway, so we, we kind of, you know, we set up what, what, where that's going to come from, um, and how that works. The, the thing, the final thing I'll say is that, you know, and I, we can talk a little bit about the, you know, there's a bunch of questions about logistics, but the last thing I'll say related to that is, um, when you're doing those interviews, you want to do a direct, and if you go to a court of law, there's a direct and there's cross. A direct is, I'm going to ask you open questions, not answering the question. That's a direct. And then there's cross, which I know what you're going to say. <laughs> like, or I need you to say something. When you think about interviewing someone in an office, you want to think about first doing direct, then cross. If you start doing cross ahead of time, so trying to put words in their mouth, you'll lose them. They'll come apart slowly into where the point where they're, they're just saying whatever you want them to say. It doesn't feel right. It doesn't feel good. You want to find open questions to ask them that don't try to lead them, that lead them towards the right place, but give them a lot of space to ask, the, answer the questions openly. And then there's oftentimes for a product, you need them to say certain things. And then you ask, then you start tightening that, but don't do the tightening at the beginning. Like let them just talk through it and have a good time and be settled um, to make that work. Lots of good information there. Jason? Boy, um, Alex covered a whole bunch of really great things. Uh, um, let me let me try to frame it a little bit differently. Shooting in an office is all about constraints. Um, it's it's you know the same process as if it's in a studio, but it's about you know the constraints that make it different from a studio. Um, one thing that I'll add to this is when you do your walkthrough, you need that name list. Who do I call for this? How do I get a hold of them? Um, you know, and what are their three ways to get a hold of them? And are they going to be available four hours beforehand? Because I might just need them for ten minutes, but that ten minutes could cause this, you know, insane house of cards effect that can mess with your entire load in. Um, I would also add that load out sometimes depending upon the size of your crew, 
um, can can affect this too. Let's say you know the lights are automatically designed to turn off at five p.m., but you know you're running a you're running a long shoot. Um, also, as far as treatment is concerned, you know, yeah, you want to re- you want to treat the surfaces that are that are there, but also don't forget about the things behind, um, you know, the the camera. Right, treat the far wall because that's where you're going to get a lot of the reflection. Um, also, you don't want things like hallway in the shot because there is going to be someone who's, you know, no matter how well you clear it, there's going to be somebody walking. It's going to make you crazy. So it, it really is about constraints and about planning as much as you can beforehand and then having a good backup plan for, for each possible contingency. Alex, you wanted to toss back in? You'll hear us talk about, we opened up the whole thing with all these logistics of how to get in and out. And the reason that most of us focus on that is you can't do it. The other stuff is relatively simple, like how you set up for the lighting and how you do those things. We'll answer some of those questions as they come in. The thing that kills you is is not having the logistics sorted out in an office shoot because it is, um, you don't have time to do anything creative. You don't have time to make anything else work. You don't have, you know, and it all comes out and, and it almost never has to do with your creative skill um, in an office interview. It all comes down to the logistics of getting in and getting out and making it work and having enough time and, and having knowing what you're getting yourself into and what it's going to look like. And so you just really have to focus, you know, they, there's a, um, you know, the, the, my, I've said this before, but my favorite quote, one of my favorite quotes in production is that is from general Omar Bradley. And he says, you know, amateurs talk about strategy and, and, uh, professionals talk about logistics and everything about an office shoot is about logistics. Amen to that. I will also say, um, in the days of the modern era where security is a lot of things, getting a hold of an all-access pass and giving it to the person who's going to be overseeing the load-in is one of the most mission-critical things I've run into. That and understanding who's going to be my helper in the corporate side. If I'm getting set up for a CEO's shoot, uh, is it their administrative assistant? Who is it that I go to when I have a problem? Who has enough juice to cut through anything and say, you know, I need to talk to the EMS people because this this – air conditioner is killing me. You got to kill it for 20 minutes until we can finish the talk with the CEO. Uh, Let's look at at least a couple of pictures here. I have some from some earlier shots that I have done. Uh, So this is kind of a typical CEO office. This is the CEO. Excuse me. I didn't the wrong thing there. This is the CEO of one of the uh, major credit unions in our area. And we did a shoot. And this is kind of a typical setup. I had big windows to deal with. So I've flown a light panels Astra over her as her rim light. Uh, I have her microphone on a C stand with an arm there because I didn't want to go through the process of, of laving her. My key light, which is on the same side as a window, is a light panels Gemini, and they are, I, I love them. They are bright enough to fight a lot of things. But these little things like this area over here, whoops, I managed to get that in the wrong mode. Uh, the area back on the credenza behind her, first of all, you notice we've completely destroyed her office in terms of its normal shape shape. That couch is out. It's angled just a tiny bit because that's a better on-camera angle for me and the shot. Uh, Her credenza in the back has been moved. Everything has been moved down to the end. So you do have to watch even these little details. How am I going to build my shot? What is it going to look like? And uh, this was another one of those short things. We had to come in real fast. I would have taped down all those cords on there, but everybody agreed that we. this was a reaction when the pandemic started to her needing to make a an, a, a chat to the troops. And uh, we're all on board with it. We're just going to get in, 
get the shot done, and get out of there as fast as possible. So that's a typical kind of interview setting that I might do for a corporate shoot. I know we'll have more examples of that, and we've got a lot of questions coming in. So let's get to our next questions. Next question is from Andy Kokendorfer in Vieira, Florida. And Andy asks, what is your preferred lighting plot for a two-person interview, host and guest, in an office? Well, now you're talking about key light, fill light, and, and backlights. Alex, what's your typical approach? I think Jason's ahead of me there. Oh, Jason, is, are you? Uh, well, okay. I, I'll start with with um, with just, you know, talking point graphics, right? Ideally, in a perfect scenario, um, it would be very similar to a shoot. And I'm going to give you the, the, the simplest possible way to do this, right? You know, kind of a, a key light on the back and a really, really big, really, really soft, massive front light. Um, any less than that, and you're going to end up with, with problems. And I'll, I'll let Alex take it from there. Alex? Yeah, I mean, we all do it differently. I mean, I think we all, it depends on what you want it to look like and how you want it to work. Um, one of the things you want to think about, if you think about this here and you have uh, two people talking, a lot of times what we do is we're going to have a big light source that's going this way and a big light source that's going this way if our camera's here. So we've got a wide camera. Oftentimes what we do is we have a wide camera with the two of them, but the most important cameras are going to be one that's right off the shoulder here and another camera that's right off the shoulder here. So a lot of these lights, figuring out where these go, you can light it across. Um, we don't do that as often. We typically keep it on the same side because oftentimes we want to use these as backgrounds. Um, and you have to make figure out where, you know, when you look at this long one, this also just means that there's a certain area here for you to dress. Um, a lot of times, if you think about a person, we oftentimes have a hair light that's sitting almost over top of them that's usually that's usually flown in from a c-stand and an arm um it's going to be right over top of the head it's turned really low <laughs> it's just we just want to get a little detail in there um to just to just have that there a lot of times that's a light panel of some kind um to to make that ha happen um and then we uh again with with this you have your key lights that are coming this way um you have your hair light that's going this way and then you again you may be able to hide you know, oftentimes up up in here, you know, some fill to kind of break that in or some kind of reflector. The other thing that people forget is that a lot of times you're lighting that background with little spotlights, little, um, you have little Lecos, little gobos, a lot of other things. People oftentimes use something that's patterned and they're going to push it up against there. If you watch a lot of 60 minutes um, uh, interviews, you're going to see um, a patterned air background that just kind of models everything up a little bit and doesn't, uh, it's not just a straight, light. Um, and what I will say is that, um, you know, if you want to look at, you know, you want to study what other people are doing all the time. Um, I, as far as like a standard look of two people talking, 60 Minutes probably does it as well as almost anybody in the world. They've been doing it only for about 40 years, 40, 50 years. And so you can see like whatever you do, especially with their newer stuff where they've gotten better cameras and they're playing a little harder than they used to. Um, you're starting to see um, some some pretty good design in what 60 Minutes does, rather you know, and so I would I would definitely take a look at that. Um, I would also look at you know just other interviews that um, that uh, that that make it that you go wow that looks good. You know, Light and Magic did a lot of great stuff. Um, the social pro the social dilemma is a great a lot of great interviews. Try to deconstruct what they're doing in lighting um, to see what they're you know to kind of think about that. The first, the final thing with lighting is always look in people's eyes. So if you see a four, you know an image of someone's eyes, you, you pull it up that eye and you'll see where all the lights are. <laughs> like you know like you can you can you can see the trajectory of where all the lights are and how big they are once you get used to it. So if I see someone that looks great, I pull that up really quickly and I look at their eyes. 
and see where all where they put all those lights to make them look that way. I will add one more thing, which is that to me, adding a second camera for crossing shots adds probably three times as much setup and prep time, only if only because you have two cameras that are looking in two different directions. So you've got two different backgrounds to to make sure that there's nothing distractive and that the, that the shot is interesting. I've had a lot of circumstances in a small office where we tried to shoehorn two cameras in and half of the, the right stage right camera had a blank wall there that I had to do something about. And then you turn the other direction and the other half of that wall was a blank wall. And suddenly I'm in the process of, okay, what can I bring in to give this some visual depth and make it interesting? Those are the challenges of working in offices where you don't have control. Uh, Let's dive into some of our questions here. Next question is from Roscoe Jones in Madison, Indiana. And Roscoe asks, are there any advantages to getting the interviewee up and walking around in a large office? Alex? Not usually. <laughs> if they're if they feel stiff, so, so I guess I want to say is that if they feel stiff, I want them to kind of walk up. And, and if they're going to do something, letting them walk around a little bit to loosen up, I think um, allows them to 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 kind of work on work on something and calm down a little bit if they're nervous. Uh, I don't like shooting them that way, um, just because it just is so many variables um, to what we're doing for an interview that I don't I don't usually I, I like to shoot behind the scenes. I like to shoot them doing things. I like to do that stuff. But when I'm actually asking them something, I'm trying to get really good audio. I'm trying to get really good, you know, a setup, and I I don't I don't want to wa- have them walking around with the cameras rolling. I will say another thing is just the psychology of on set. Uh, the first thing you'll probably, if I ever interview you on camera here, will be, oh, this is going to be so easy. That first one, you just knocked it out of the ballpark. You look fabulous. This sounds great. It is a psychological game to put your interviewee in a comfortable, confident headspace. And even if everything is going wrong, you never... Never give them that vibe of this is you you don't look good or there's something wrong or you don't start picking at, you know, this thing on your tie. Blah, blah, blah. No, this is a psychological game. You want to put them in a space where they can shine. So everything you do in the first part of the interaction, I have had people that were so hard to settle down that I've had to say, OK, we're just going to take a break here and um you know, and I'll go over and I'll talk about something just for a minute with them. You know, you know, uh, tell me about your first pet or tell me about something. I just want to get them into a space where they're comfortable, where they don't feel the stress. And if I can build that rapport with them off, they're saying, OK, well, let's go over. We're just going to have a talk here. And then you always want to have some sort of physical signal for your camera operator or whatever so that you don't put them in a, OK, we're going to go in three, two, one. You know, that will shut down the brains of people that you are talking to in an interview situation. So you really want to just try from that personal conversation to then it's your skill to move them into the topics where they need to to respond. Alex, do you have other thoughts? And Mickey had a good point that it's, it's nice for them to show things around. And, and I definitely believe if they're, if they're a doer, if they're doing something and you're interviewing them about that, walking around and capturing that and having them look at it might be the best footage that you have. The way I view interviews, at least the way I do them, is that's my safety. <laughs> like That's how I go back. I know when I finish an interview of them seated, seated or standing behind their work desk or doing whatever they're doing, that is my, that is the, and I don't know if Chris wants to talk to that, but that's my thread that tells, I, I know that I have everything to tell the story. 
I know I've got good audio. I know I've got good video. I know, I know that I have a show when I finish the interview and then I want to be creative. And, you know, and once I've got that, once I've got them sitting there or standing, they can be standing, but I've got it all worked out and I've gotten that whole interview all worked out. I know that I can always go back to that. If I can cover it with them walking around hundred percent, like that's going to be better and it's going to look better, but I'm going to have rustling. I'm going to have bad audio and there's nothing worse than them saying something amazing and you're just like, Man, I can't use it. <laughs> you know, like I can't use that footage because I can, you know, and so those are all the things that you want to um, think about. Also, when you're thinking about that, if they're going to show things, try to shoot a lot of stuff without their mouth in the shot. Um, so you want to show them like the behind them, them, them showing you things, cut, cutting to their hands, those kinds of things. Get a lot of that as well as them talking through things because that, that gives you, that's going to stand you up with a bunch of B-roll as well. And Chris, you edit a lot of these. What are your top things uh, yeah my favorite technique is what alex just said you, you have to have the spot i call it the spine everything has a spine and on that spine you hang all the limbs and all the muscle muscles and all the ligatures and all the skin and, you know all the, i said that you know all the stuff everything's got to hang on that spine and the spine might be a sit-down interview um the spine could be a well-crafted script of which you know there's a lot of you know vo and whatnot <clears throat> that the on-camera people are, that's what you're hanging, you know, that they're um, dressing up that spine. But if you, but my favorite technique is to have somebody tell a story and have a nice, have a nice location for it. You want to be a real gangster. Do the same thing in a second location. Go, you know, do it once in the warehouse and once in the front office. And then, um, you could do the same thing doing like a, a, a casual walk and talk, you know, it could be, it could be, you know, just walking through the, you know, the um, manufacturing plant. I did a, I did a video once where a guy, I called him the, the chair king of Wisconsin. All their company did was make the mounts that auto manufacturers put between the cab and the seat. He just, made, they just made that stuff. And it was, it was the dumbest story ever, but, you know, we shot it multiple ways and we got him to explain it out in the horribly loud warehouse, but also in a controlled environment. But having those angles, it's really fun to take, you know, start a sentence or an idea here and then boom, you know, you transition to the walk and talk out in the uh, the warehouse or whatever. But having the variety, I've, I've said it many times here, I would rather have five mediocre shots of B-roll than five takes of one shot of B-roll that's perfect. Like, I don't care. Perfect is the, is the enemy of good and variety trumps perfect every time because I could take multiple shots of something, uh, of multiple different shots and cut them so quickly that you don't notice any imperfection in the shot. I don't care if there's a roll of gaff tape down in the corner because I can cut away from it be before you notice it. You know, Alex? I'd much oh. rather have variety. Alex, and just to build on this, I know we're going to we're going a little off off the rails here, but but the um, but as we talk through that. Also, just remember when you get to the office, you don't know when you're going to come back. Um, so shoot pickups, you know, so shoot, shoot a whole bunch of the exterior of the building, the interior of the building, people walking around the office. This gets back to Chris's like, while you're there, collect a bunch of, you know, and work out with them what you can and can't shoot and where you can point and, and who's available and who can be there. But 
but having, um, you know, get gathering all that up, even if you're going to come back and do it again, when you're there with a camera, go, go grab some, some, some of that stuff and, and, um, and try to, and try to figure that out because, um, we've been saved a couple of times where we thought we we're going to do the shoot, couldn't come back and, uh, or just, you know, they went under construction or whatever. And we had just enough to, to, to get through the thing. And the other thing to think about there is the second camera, you know, uh, a, a cutaway camera that you can use to edit around things that people might, you might want to cut something out of what they're saying. One of my favorite shots of all time ever in a piece I cut was, and we ended up using it for like the, the opening title sequence for the video. The camera operator, Clarence Novak, a good friend of mine, um, retired now. Uh, he walked into the lobby of the building. He had his camera slung under his arm. The producer sits down to, to sign them in and he sits down in a chair and he's noticing people coming in and out the door and he... Just while he was sitting there, he zooms in, he gets this sort of obscure thing, he takes his lens doubler, he half rolls it in so it has this dreamy look, and he just rolls off like, you know, 15, 20 seconds of this while he's sitting there waiting for the producer to sign them into the building. Uh, work, working with people that capture, you know, extra stuff like that, super, super big advantage. Absolutely. Well, you know, as an editor, you always want more rather than fewer things. Let's go. I, I got another shot here just to talk through a couple of little aspects of this. This is something we did in a relatively uh, small area. But you, that last question was about uh, about moving around. And one of the issues is I'm in an office and there's a lot of reflective surfaces behind my subject here. My wife's doing the interviewee uh, thing. And so I'm locking off a smaller shot. In fact, here's Linda sitting in for just lighting tests. And you can see that all of that reflectivity is gone because I'm not moving the camera around. I have a fixed thing and I've taken care of making sure that those distractions are out of my shot. It's it's really what you have to do. That's and the next one coming up. I, I just want to build on something that you just said there that you just pointed to that's really important I don't want to skip over is having somebody on your team that is going to sit in place um, while you're setting things up is gold. Um, you know, you know, having somebody that that is, a, it can be a PA for the largest events, um, we, we actually bring people in that look similar to um, similar to the subject. We did a bunch of stuff in the White House, as I've said before. And and uh, Frederick Van Johnson, who some people have seen with this week in photo, um, happened to look like our subject a lot and about the same height. And we would use him all the time to get everything set up. <laughs> so we make sure that 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 he would, that the lighting was the same and that the framing was right and everything else. And that way, when our subject walk in, they they would just sit down and everything was just right. So um, you know, finding someone who is about the same height and and everything else, we sometimes will bring those folks in, and that's their only job. It's just that they're not a PA. They're not another person on the crew. Their job is to sit and do the thing. Um, just sit there and be part, be what we do to figure this out. Yeah. Next question. Next question is from Andy Kokendorfer in Vienna, Florida. And Andy asks, how many of you have rearranged an executive's office for an interview only to have them like it so much that they leave it that way? I've actually never had that happen. And the reason <laughs> is that... <laughs> The reason is I only care about the video shoot. Here's a, a back shot of that same office I was in a minute ago. And uh, that arrangement makes no sense for an executive office. We've taken away her little conference area where she meets with people. We've moved tables out of the way. We've got her regular work table over against the windows on the other side. I am not trying to rearrange into something that works for real work, I'm building something that looks exactly right on camera. 
I was gonna say the same thing. Like it's just like we we rearrange. We I just go in and I just tear the office apart, move it all around, and and there's things in weird positions and everything else. And all I'm looking through is my frame. You know, I'm looking at my frame and I'm trying to figure out uh, where those things look just right and move around. And and that's that's all I care about. But yeah, no one's no one's ever said, "Can you leave it that way?" Leave it this way. It's usually a disaster. And I and I want tons of room to the back to the back. I want as much room as I can possibly get. To their back wall so it can be out of focus now a lot of that's gotten better with you know full frame sensors and everything else but but we still try to spread that that space out and um and so that we're jammed up in one place and pushing them over to another but it, and just trying to make sure that, that we're filling the frame yeah it's it's weird chris you need to be careful you're uh, what what alex said about all i care about is what is the frame Keep in mind, you probably don't have to change as much as you might think you need to. The frame can be a, a your friend. Um, and although I've never rearranged somebody's office significantly to the point where they said they wanted to keep it, they did ask if they could keep the lighting. <laughs> <laughs> That's a wholly different thing. And on that shot I just showed a minute ago, I'll just make a note about this thing. Um you know, in the actual, let's go to that second shot. Notice in the window behind him, that is a glass wall to a hallway. And we're going to be doing interviews over the course of a whole morning. So uh, in the next shot, that negative space on the camera right side of that back wall is this huge pop-up that looks ugly as sin, but its function was to keep anybody walking through the hallway during the shoot out of the frame. So we don't ever have that problem of a distracted eye line there. Let's go to the next question. Oh, Jason, I'm sorry. Jason had something you wanted to. Yeah, I just, I had one quick thing to throw in. Um, just to, it's hard to underemphasize this. Um, Alex, I don't know how far away you are from your back wall, but to get it, you know, a nice bokeh, um, I think I'm not even shooting all the way open. This is maybe at 3.2 instead of 2.8. I'm six and a half feet from this wall. Um, and like, that's how you get that nice, you know, kind of clean, everything's, um, everything's dreamy behind and then sharp focus. Um, there's yeah. kind of no way to cheat that, even with a full frame. I'm That's 10 right. feet. I'm 10 feet from my wall. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, definitely. It's definitely set up that way. Uh, let's go to the next question. Next, next question is from Jesse Mills in the San Francisco Bay Area. And Jesse asks, let's hear about how folks set up and adjust cameras when including a presenter in front of a projection screen or LED wall. Let's imagine they are pointed at the screen and the slide deck uh, is white with lots of small black text. Alex, you want to start us off here? We sure hope we don't have to imagine that uh, or, or, or think about that. That's a horrible setup. Um, yeah, so that would be – so one of the things about office shoots um, is uh, with – we would typically not have a production – you know, when we're going to an office, we're, we're usually trying to capture the office, capture the feel, capture where you're at, use the, use the environment around us. Um, to some degree, we may we may manipulate it, but it it should feel like that. I mean, sometimes we build sets in in studios that feel like your office, and they're not. Um, you know, so, so I think that um, that's the, you know, that's where we go with it. The other thing is, is that you know, we will do. I will do almost anything I can not to shoot in front of an LED wall. <laughs> like, you know, I will, if I get pushed into a corner, I may I may go down that path. Um, and the reason for that is mostly that it it there's a couple things. One is is that it it feels, I think a lot about how the viewer feels and it doesn't feel as real and it's very hard to make it look good. Um, you know, you can, I'm not saying you can't, but it's, 
often easier to have an analog background than it is to make an LED wall not look fake, you know, and, and, and virtual and un, un, you know, it, there's a thing that as we start to make videos for people who are watching online and watching on their phones, there is this disconnection of reality that we have. It's, it's an artificialness. And so what I'm always trying to do is how do I bring that back in? How do I bring the analog back in? How do I make you feel like it's more real than it is? Not how do I make it less that way? Um, I don't think that people who design around LED backgrounds are thinking about how the user feels. Um, or they're spending an enormous amount of money because now with an LED wall, um, there's a the math is really the distance to the screen, the pitch of the screen, the size of the sensor, and the focal length. Those are the four things that are affecting that. And now you have to start moving that person away from that screen so that it gets soft. You have to, you know, because you can't have a sharp image behind them generally and have it not have moray issues and, and pixelization issues and all those other things that are there. So um, I would typically for a for a live event, maybe, but for a post event, I would rather shoot in front of green screen than an LED wall. There you go. Next question. Uh, next question is from Andy Kokendorfer in Vienna, Florida. And Andy asks, when lighting interviews, do you prefer a reverse or standard key light? You know, this is an interesting subject to me because for a long time, I always tried to do inside keys. But that was back in the old days when people weren't looking directly at the camera. We mostly had that 60-minute style of someone off to one side or another kind of looking across the frame, uh, kind of where the interviewer would be sent sitting. And in those cases, I almost always started with an inside key, which just means that the short side of the face, if if someone is at an angle and your camera is looking at uh, a face side that's closest to the camera and a face side that's farther away, I would try to hit my key on that farther away side and let the close side fall into shadow. Um, you can also do an outside key, which is the opposite, light them on the broad side of their face. Uh, I never found that quite as positive. But again, nowadays, most people are facing direct into the camera. And so the the broad side and the short side or the highlight side, the key side and the, the uh, fill side, both of those are up to the videographer's choice. And so I would try to look at the interviewee and say, do they look better from one side or the other? In this, is there something in the background lighting that I can play off of? Like I have a highlight up there on my side, so I might want a key from the other side just because that's kind of a, a strong visual element. It really does change depending on what you're trying to do. So I think you have to look at the shot and decide what you want to do. So am I the only one that calls that light, dark, salt, and pepper? Right, well, you know, the, I, the there's a lot the of terms for it. You know, in lighting theory, there's short side lighting, uh, key fill lighting, fill side. It, you know, there's not one uh, thing in lighting theory. I think it is. It's the brightest part of the shot versus the shadow part. And part of good lighting typically is to key them so that you can see the shape of their face and their face has some dimensionality so it doesn't look like a flat driver's license shot. And then to add subtle fill on the other side to bring up the shadows where you want to bring up the shadows and leave them in places like under their chin where sometimes people don't have the best look. Uh, let's go to the next question. Next question is from Douglas Carmichael. Uh, how do you manage working in a corporate government IT department that is not used to the needs of production. Alex, you want to give us some thoughts? You've done a lot of that. Slowly and gently. <laughs> so, so you know, you want to get ahead. Uh, you don't want to surprise people. You want to make sure that you're working with folks that are, um, you know, that 
you got to decide, you know, how important is it, you know, and, and is it important enough to, to have the juice that that's needed to get things done? Um, a lot of people don't like to have their environments, um, perturbed <laughs> so 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 they're not going to be that excited about that um, it's usually not coming from them unless now if you're interviewing them then they get all excited and they want to put the pretty lights behind you and everything else but if it's not about them um, then they then they are less uh, flexible typically um, you want to have a lot of pre-pro the big thing is is that walkthroughs conversations requirements in text you know in emails in breakdown production sheets so on and so forth that are approved by everybody especially when folks aren't that excited about you being there you really want to cover cover yourself with all of those things that are there what you don't want to do is start asking for lots of things once you get there um that's a great way to be, make people really upset is the, you know oh i need another connection oh, i need this i need more power i need you have something i can put this on all those things we try to ask for almost nothing once we get there. You know, like, you know, it's, it's you know, we try to figure that all out and make sure that we all have it figured out before we get there and only ask for something if it's absolutely necessary. Jason? Yeah, this comes down to three words, make a friend. Um, you know, it, be willing to invest the time and energy required to understand what, you know, what they can and can't do. And, and this is really the key part is why they can or can't do it. Because a lot of the time, um, you know, if, if, for example, you're shooting a CEO, you'd be amazed at what CEOs can make disappear if it's some sort of, you know, rule that, that someone in IT feels like they have to, you know, maintain at all times or they're going to get into trouble. Um, you know, that that's that's really, really important stuff. And um, and lastly, just in practicum, if I have time for um, for a pre-walk and, you know, it is with IT, I'll get down to the plate and, you know, oh, okay, is this the one that I'm going to be going through? Cool. All right. And I, I will actually go and, and take my web presenter and I will dial up the, the resolution, you know, put playback into it and then just hit on. And like, you know, as we're walking around, I've got my phone and I'm like, so, you know, here's what we're pushing and here's, here's you know, here's how it's looking. And when you see that buffer going, uh, uh, um, if they have that real-time feedback, sometimes it can be very, very helpful um, when, you know, they're, they're trying to figure out why you're not getting what they think you are. Alex had another thought. Offices are complex. Um, use leverage only if absolutely necessary. So, um, you know, I, I work with a lot of folks where I've interviewed a lot of CEOs, a lot of uh, C-suite. I mean, that's mostly what you're interviewing when you go into these offices. And um, you want to be as, you know, be nice. <laughs> I love the, I love the, um, in Roadhouse, I, I don't know why I like Roadhouse so much, but I like the movie Roadhouse. But the one thing he's constantly saying is walk them to the door and be nice. Do this and be nice. Do this and be nice. And being nice gets you a long way. You'd be surprised at how much smiling and just being happy and nice to everyone. It's very easy because you're worried about a lot of things to get kind of grumpy and have kind of a concerned look on your face and be short with people. But man, it just goes so, it's so much easier when, when you're happy and you're asking people and, you know, knowing what their weekend was like and knowing what their kids are like and knowing what they're, you know, you don't, you don't, don't start, you know, asking them all those things, but ask them things, be interested in them, be interested in everyone around you um, and make friends, again, make friends with them. I kind of do it naturally. It's kind of a nervous habit of, habit of mine. So I don't sound like something learned for me, um, but, but it's a, um, but, but absorbing who around you is doing what and starting to learn their names. Uh, I'm still working on that one. I'm not a very good name person, but I sit there. You'll see me repeat. If someone introduces them at an office, you'll see me repeating their name, like staring at them, repeating their name over and over again. I look like a little like rain man trying to keep trying to tie that into my head so that I can say, hey, Joe, can I get this? And rather than you, 
Um, and all those things help to, to make it make the flow much, much nicer. And when you need that one last little thing, no one cares about it. They're like, yeah, let me get that for you. And, 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 and so you want to build those relationships, especially if you think you're going to come back. 100% on everything that's just been said in this whole thread. Although I will say, I want to add one more thing. You're there to do a job. And your success or failure depends on whether you can get that job done. If there is truly something you think is going to damage the video because it's not right, you must stand for that and get it done right. If you walk away and there was a, an exit sign in the back that you kind of noticed was flickering a little, mm -hmm. I got to tell you, I can't tell you the number of uh, meetings I've been in, and that's all they want to talk about is that one thing that you didn't catch so it's a balance. It's, yes, you want to be nice and professional and, and personable and all the rest of that. But this is also your profession. And get a, get a reputation for catching those things and, and fixing the ones that really do need fixing. Yeah, and I, I wouldn't say you, know, you always want to be um, as pushy as you can for getting exactly what you want. Just do it in a nice way. <laughs> but, but we definitely, I will ask for 10 times more than what people expect. Um, you know, going into it because I'm, I know that like, I know that I'm going to be measured by what comes out the camera, <laughs> you know, like, you know, and so this other stuff makes everything easier down the road. The stuff that's going to matter is what the pixels and the sound, uh, I think it was mentioned earlier is the sound of, of what's coming out. Let's go to the next question. Next question is from Bob Sturdivant in Nairobi, Kenya. And Bob asks, how I many have you ever looked at an office shoot and said it wasn't possible in their office and offered to set up a quasi office that looks like theirs? Alex? Um, probably 20% of the time. <laughs> like, you know, so there's so many times where we can't shoot. There's a whole bunch of reasons you can't shoot in a specific office. It's too small. It has too many windows. It has, you know, that, that you can't treat. It has, um, it's just, it's, there's nothing that you can move around. Um, and so oftentimes, very often, we are finding another place in the building that we can get to that looks like it could be their office or somebody else's office that we can take over. A lot of times, if it's a C-suite, they don't have the time to give you. They don't, they can't give you their office for five or six hours. You need to find a place to do it. And, and you don't want to force your way into that office because get, what you want to do is find some place that you have the time to do that. You don't want a CEO or a C-suite going Let's go, let's go, let's go, let's go. I have another meeting. I have to do this thing. I have to work on this paper. So you're better off generally being somewhere that doesn't look, um, that looks like their office, but actually isn't their office. That's usually much easier, especially if you're dealing with C-suite. Next question. Next question is from Abby Lopez in San Antonio, Texas. And Abby asks, uh, when doing office shoots, do you have a monitor for the rest of the office to watch? Jason and then Alex. Jason? Oh, my God. Never, ever, 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 ever are you going to put a monitor up and, um, you know, as someone's walking in, be like, oh, yeah, that's the thing that the rest of the office is going to, you know, be able to see everything you do in real time. Uh-uh. Uh, Alex? A lot of times we build viewing stations for the decision makers. Um, so so having – I wouldn't have the rest of the office watch it, but as, as Jason said, but, but you um, – uh, you want to, uh, you, you, the, you definitely want to have a place where other people can view it. Uh, uh, what's really become the thing that we do most of the time is zoom. So usually what we do is we, we connect to zoom and let all the decision makers that are connected to this, be able to watch it. They send us text notes of, Hey, it'd be really good if this happened or this happened. Sometimes we, we have, we build it around an open speaker so that literally between takes, 
you know, if the marketing director or something wants something specific, they can just jump in from, you know, and say, hey, can you do this one more time? Da, 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 da. It, you don't want to get it, you know, obviously it can go awry, but it does help when the decision makers can see it because they can solve a bunch of problems that they're going to be frustrated. They're going to be picking at the rest of the production if you didn't get it right. And if they ask it and then they're happy that it, it solves that, that problem that you can't fix later. Yeah, I'm a sometimes guy. It just depends on the the person who's going to be seeing the monitor. I never do it for a large crowd of people. I think that's way too disruptive. Uh, often with executives, they will have an executive assistant. That is a relationship of deep trust between the executive and the executive assistant. And if you read the relationship, uh, if you can bring that executive assistant back behind the monitors where they can say, you know, here's what I'm doing to make your CEO look good, and particularly if you make a couple of adjustments and it does improve how he or she looks, then they're on your side and their thumbs up to their executive will put them tremendously at ease. So it's a judgment call whether or not that confidence monitor has a place on your set, and it's up to you to determine. Next question. Next question is from Dave Troutman in Edmonton, Canada. And and Dave asks, uh, has anyone ever come across a company who had their own office studio with installed lights and would you use it alex yeah and yes (laughs) oftentimes we'll use it now sometimes it depends it depends on how old the studio is so that's the only time we think about it is like well um you know like if it's if it looks old and it's been there for a couple years but we have a lot of them that for really big corporations we've definitely seen ones that are built out and they they look great they were built for shooting um and these are for typically fortune 50 <laughs> you know companies that, that i've worked with but they have a couple studios that are built for these interviews um and we'll we'll do it we we'll try to find something creative to do with it but a lot of times it just has a lot more feature fun you know a lot of creature comforts that we want a lot of times we end up replacing their lights because the lights are old you know or they're not what we want so we end up putting our own lights in but some of the the larger tech companies will have um, these studios are really built out, and so they're they work really well. They have a lot of power. They're quiet. They're floated. They're you know all the things that we want to see in a studio. I, mean, I think I showed a picture earlier one of one of those, um, and it's just a, it's a you know it's built for that. And then and if you shoot something, if you say you don't want it, then we have to keep on rep- um, telling them why we didn't use their studio. And if anything goes wrong, now we really have to explain it. <laughs> so so that's the thing we have to think about too. Henwick, yeah, this is a this is a common thing. Um, and in the decades that I've been doing this, it is, there, it's sort of a recurring fractal that you see happen where com- what, what typically happens is a company decides to bring production in-house, um, they'll hire a couple of people, or maybe there's one very industrious person who, who, you know, knows which end of the video camera to point, which direction. And he talks the boss into a budget and then they build out some stuff. Sometimes it becomes a, an extremely elaborate, very well, highly engineered setup. Um, usually after seven to 10 or 12 years, um, there's a bit of a downturn. There's a, they want to save some money. They'll fire off the staff. Sometimes the I've seen ghost studios that are like unmanned with no staff people to run them. Um, I've worked for companies that do nothing but say, hey, we'll staff out your studio on command uh, to do whatever you need to do. But then, you know, it comes back. And it literally, you can see, I've seen it happen three or four times in my career of companies that, you know, grow up a presence and then it dies out and stuff. Um, Like Alex said, sometimes super advantageous. Sometimes it has to be um, augmented with additional gear you bring in. 
Next question. Next question is from James Mar- Jamie Marsh in Tallahassee, Florida. And Jamie asks, any pointers on mics, types, number, placement? I'm sure we'll have thoughts, Alex. Start For most off. interviews, yeah, sound doesn't really matter. I'm just, I just said Mics that. Mics are overrated. Get Mickey upset. <laughs> Who cares about the sound? Um, anyway, so so anyway, the sound is probably, you know, for, especially when you're doing these interviews, sound is probably more important than the video um, because this is, a, as, as Chris said, this is the spine. A lot of times you're putting it underneath B-roll. You're putting it underneath graphics. You're putting it underneath things. And so the sound becomes, uh, in, again, in my opinion, it's probably 60 to 80% of what you're doing there. <laughs> like why you're, why you're doing the interview is to get that sound. Uh, so a lot of times we're using um, uh, shotgun mics. Uh, typically I have a primary and a backup above them. And when I say above them, I mean, we bring it, it's about two to three feet out and we bring those mics down until they're in the frame. And then we pull them back out so that they are as close to that person as possible. Uh, we tend to, um, avoid, we tend to shoot for the, um, the, the sternum, you know, the, the bottom of the sternum, um, to, to make that work, um, to, to do that. We, uh, we use shotgun mics. I use a, up four sixteens or there's some Sankins that we use in the, in, as well. Um, I don't like labs because I don't like the way they sound and I don't like, like the way they look. <laughs> so, so I don't, um, so we will put labs on occasionally, but it's, it's pretty, uh, it's pretty rare, um, uh, rare for us to use labs because I, it's also means that I, I, again, for the clientele that I work with, I have to touch the client and the client, a lot of clients that I work with don't like to be touched. Um, you know, they don't like to be messed with. So we do everything we can to have them be able to just sit down and not have to fiddle with them. Um, and so, uh, so for, again, for the folks that we work with, it, it tends not to work well. And we find that shotguns are easier. They can just sit down and they're more comfortable. They can get up and walk around. Um, sometimes we do do the labs as a backup. Um, but we rarely use them. Um, and, um, and so those are the, those are the ones that, that we typically use, um, our 416s road. Sometimes for the smaller kits, we have roads, um, the, the NT2s, which are not as good as the 416, but good enough for a lot of things. There's a lot of more self noise in them. Uh, the Sankins are the quietest ones, but we find that we do have to kind of fill the room out with lots of blankets and everything else. So the other thing is, is whatever you're doing, carpets, soft walls around them, I, you know, still tend to build kind of cocoons in that area. Uh, Chris, real quick. Uh, what Alex said about people not being wanting to be touched. I did like a decade of low budget broadcast, you know, interviews and stuff, and it was lobs, 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 and you know, you do it enough, and you get you get a little better at it. It is it is an awkward thing to come into somebody's space, and um, what's interesting is the more professional, like pros, don't care. They don't care at all. Do whatever you want. Um, But dealing with um, uh, civilians, um, non-pros, it's an art and it's a skill. And um, when you find somebody who, if you have to do it, when you find somebody who's good at it, keep them around. It's good. Yeah, we always, I, uh, division manager and below, we would tend to try to get a lab on them as just an act, an extra because you never know if they were going to project at all. And sometimes even the best shotgun over, if the room's a little noisy, I'd love to get a mic five inches from their mouth rather than a foot and a half, two feet. But that said, uh, when you get up into the C-suite and you're talking about CEOs or division presidents or whatever, uh, almost never. So Alex, you had a last thought? Yeah, um, here's a here's a here's kind of an example of something that you know it's a it's a house, but you know, it's kind of like an office here. This is just for sound, <laughs> you know, that's just to keep the reflection down. Uh, carpets are nice for that as well. 
Um, this is a, you know, a small teleprompter. We're trying to keep the eye line, you know, straight into it here. A little 6K, but an Anshinu lens. The lens is probably 10 times more expensive than the, than the 6K. Very, very large um, sources here um, to make this work. And then again, this is a, your mic pole with a, with a shotgun. And that's some, you know, some, uh, and often the way we do it. And then oftentimes, again, we, we bring one in here and go up because sometimes if this doesn't work, if they look away or look down, we have something to kind of grab onto. But that's, that's, you know, again, um, and then this is for client and for the director to kind of look at it as well with a, with a larger monitor to kind of figure that out. So this is kind of a compact setup, um, to, to do within a, within an office or a house. Let's go to the next question. Uh, next question is from Abby Lopez in San Antonio, Texas. And Abby asks, what are some of the recommend, recommended travel tripod stands that it, uh, that at least carry a teleprompter payload for small offices? Jason Bache. Okay, so people might disagree with me on this one, but um, I think the smaller the office, the more imperative it is that you don't try to fly the teleprompter with the um, with the camera. And I'm going to try not not whack myself in the head with this 30 pound stand and show you. You get rollerblade wheels on a C stand, and you get them so that they just fold down um, and out, and you can get the camera exactly where you want it, and then just back the teleprompter right into it, and um, and it's just much easier. Search for roller stand, and you will find those that look like the Manfrotto, and they're they're very good. I have about four of those. Alex, I was trying to find a picture of it, I couldn't quite find it fast enough. Uh, I am a big fan of the Hot Pods. Um, it used to be made by O'Connor. I think it's now Sackler. Sackler. So what this has is a pneumatic um, center centerpiece um, column. In fact, you have to be careful. There's warnings all over it. If you put your head over it with no weight and you open that thing up, it may may knock you out because <laughs> it's got it's designed to handle up to 50 60 pounds of weight on top and so what what happens there is that that center it opens up like a regular tripod but it, that center column is lets you go up and down the biggest problem you have the biggest problem i have with teleprompters and what i think jason was addressing with what he was doing is the height you know someone sits down and you want to get the height right and everything else now i prefer to have the camera and the tripod all sitting on top of a hot pod and now i simply just push down a button and move it up move it down get it just to where i want it and it, you know it's one of those things i spent a decade not using a hot pod and i some guy from news in washington dc was like i don't understand why you're doing this just get a hot pod and i was like what is a hot pod and um and and he did it and the first time i bought it i was like okay i'm buying one and it's five thousand dollars they're not you can rent them rent them <laughs> they're a lot cheaper to rent but i bought two of them because i was like we just used them everywhere all the time and that's why i'm surprised i can't find any photos of it quickly but but the um but they are uh, gold I mean, just being able to make that adjustment very, very fast and without having to tear anything apart or move anything around. And you put those on wheels, just like Jason had said, and then you move that tripod back and forth, move it up and down. It really, the, the it, it's 10 times faster than a tripod. And I was just checking Albie's question. He was looking specifically for travel recommendations. And so that's a little tougher. Some anything, of these are a little heavy. Anything, anything is travel. <laughs> anything's travel if you're willing to check it. I mean, you know, like like this is... <laughs> I mean, and I was just going to say that I found golf bags, I mean, golf travel no, cases are make, pretty good for stands. They make hard cases. So they, with all these big tripods, we make hard cases for them. They got a handle on them. They got they got straps on the side. They pull it down and you just throw it in and check it. You you um, you tag it, throw it, check it. Um, it's going to be less than 70 pounds. Um, and if you have a press pass, it'll be less than 100 pounds is what, what you need in the United States. Um, and uh, but yeah, I mean, you're talking to I mean. I, I've checked 43 Pelican cases for, for, for a trip. So I'm, you know, anything is, anything is doing. Yeah, exactly. So Chris has that, but you can check, you can check a lot of bags and it, you, you have to stop thinking. Uh, you, the way to think about this is that 
uh, for checked bags, um, the, I think I have, I, uh, I might even have an example I can show really fast here while we're, while we're working. I think we have time. Like this is not the largest checked bag set setup that I've had, but this is an example of us, um, you know, getting ready to go. And this is at the airport this is a SFO, as you can see, um, the cases, we put them upside down so that they don't slide around. Um, and, uh, but, you know, the, and th those are all, you know, the, we're taking those carts. We're going to check those carts too. <laughs> like that's, those are the cart masters that we check. Um, so, so that is a, that's a, and that we did that a couple times a week um, for a long time. And so, so the, uh, but you want to think about that. What people make a mistake of is they try to pack light to go somewhere and they just can't do what they want to do. Um, so I, you either rent locally for the things that you need or you just check it and you figure out the logistics. You're going to have a bigger car. Um, the thing that we're not talking about today, but you can talk about somewhere in the future is a thing called a media pass, which you can just print. <laughs> and so, and uh, once you're in a media pass, you can check things for $50 a bag uh, domestically. I, say, I got a template for you. No problem. Yeah, exactly. It just has to look official. So we got, let's get, see if we can sneak in one more real quick. Um, next question is uh, from Gordon Lake. How do you deal with the office employee who has just, uh, who has just enough video uh, production knowledge to insert him or herself into the production, commenting often on enough to, uh, enough to attempt to impress the boss, but not helping your shoot? And Chris Fenwick, real quick. Send them for coffee. That's all I have to say. <laughs> yes! We've yeah. got one minute left before the top do, of the hour. We, we can Alex. answer a couple. We got a couple. Only two, a couple of questions. We can run a little over. Um, the uh, I incorporate them as much as I can. Usually, the response that I have is like, "That is a really good. That's a really good um, comment there. That's a really good question." Or, "Yeah, let me think about that a little bit." And those are all things that I respond to. If they have a good answer, uh, if they have a good suggestion, not only do I use it, but in front of their boss, I talk about how great that idea was and how great it was their idea. So I am handing off as much. They're the one that they're there at the office every day. I'm there one day. Um, I have no ego about me doing whatever I'm doing or whatever. If they come up with an idea or if they so much as come up with an idea that I can twist into their idea, I'm going to make it their idea. And and you, what you're doing is you're building someone there. You get them, you know, handling things that aren't going to cause damage. Uh, you're going to incorporate them into it. You're going to talk to them about what you're doing because that you're building an ally there. Um, I'm not worried about them learning what I do, you know, like they, that's a lot of, it's complex. <laughs> so, so I'm sitting there explaining it to them. I'm hacking out because the next time you come there, now you have an ally that's going to help you do things. You can call, Hey, can you go check this out for me? You know, and, and everything gets, everything gets easier. You just, you're just, everything you do when you're at an office is you're, you're thinking about the next shoot that you do there. And you're thinking about all the people that you're going to interact with and all your friends that you're going to have when you're there. And it just makes it, it just makes everything so much easier. And the more you come, the more you, and if you can remember things like that, that guy's got two kids, they want them in high school. You can't figure out where they're going to college. You start asking about that stuff as you walk in and you'll get anything you need while you're doing production. All right. Since Alex mentioned it, we'll do the next two questions. Uh, next question is from Bob Sturdivant from Nairobi, Kenya. Ever have, a, have to deal with, why do I look so bad on camera? Uh, can you make me look better? If so, what do you do to make it work? Chris Fenwick has a thought. I had a talent on set, and it was a, he was media savvy. And he he's sitting there on the set, and he keeps looking over his shoulder at the, at the floor monitor. And he's, and he's looking, and he's like, oh, boy, why, do, why does the camera add 10 pounds? No, he said, he said, boy, the camera really does add 10 pounds, doesn't it? And I said, yeah, and I'm shooting you with four. 
<laughs> good line alex yeah um so there's a couple of things that do help people who uh, don't look as good on camera as a model or an actor or something else like that um one thing is large light sources so you can have uh you saw in that interview that i that i showed you there's like a four by four that's right up against them so the larger the source the more it's going to fill in nooks and crannies and everything else lighting above so one of the things that i'm constantly trying to do with someone is i'll bring the light up as high as I can so that, but I still want to get highlights in there. I don't want to um, get a shadow across there from there. And so this depends on the person, but I want to move that light up as high as I can, because what I'm trying to do is define their chin. So if you bring that light up a little bit, um, you're going to, you know, a large light source. I have a large, mine's five feet by three feet. <laughs> so so I the, that's the kind of thing that you do, but you move that up above, you come down, you define that cheek, you get those highlights there. The large um, uh, uh, size works. Whoever they're talking to, make sure that they're just a little higher than they are. So you want to either sit their chair down or bring that teleprompter up. And what it's going to do is it's going to pull their it's going to pull their chin up. It's going to pull all that double chin out. I have some. See, see, look at that. So it's going to pull that chin out a little bit, and and you can even coax them to lean forward just a little bit, and and that's going to pull that all out, and they will look better. That here's the thing: is you figure this out. You look at that person, you look at what they're doing, and you figure out how to make them look like a million bucks, and you get to do that interview for every project that they have forever. <laughs> you know, so 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 you know you look for how you dance with the person and make them look great. Most people can look great with a great DP. And you want to find a way to do it. Next question. Uh, next question is from Douglas Carmichael. And he says, for executives and others that are interviewed frequently, have you ever permanently installed proper lighting cable setups? And Jason? Absolutely never. And I'll tell you why. Two reasons. First reason is I can't tell what happens to the cable before um, and after and during um, when I'm not there. And the second reason is it's going to be an eyesore no matter how you do it, no matter how well you camouflage it. And every time they look at that thing, that's what they're going to think. Alex? Done it often, actually. <laughs> the exact opposite. So we, we turn them in, we, build, we end up building, we start with interviews and we start with location stuff. And next thing you know, we're building studios for them. So we build studios, we've, we've uh, rigged out their offices. Sometimes we, um, you know, a lot of times, it, to, to what Jason said, cable management, and oftentimes obscuring some of the pieces there. So we don't leave sometimes the hardware behind. We leave the lighting. What takes us a long time is setting up the lighting and, and um, you know, the grid and everything else. And so we get that grid in. We get the lighting where it wants. We run those cables back, but then we disconnect them all. So that we, when we get in there, we turn them all back on uh, and make everything work. Uh, we tend not to leave all of that for some, you know, electronics especially for other people to mess with because to Jason's point, no, they'll break it. Um, so that's, that's something we have to think about. Great session. Thank you all. And I have to specifically thank all of our panelists today, the producers, the viewers, everybody who is uh, working behind the scenes. Everybody did a great job. Tomorrow, I believe we're doing an NAB uh, precursor. So if you're interested in our NAB coverage, make sure you come to office hours tomorrow. Of course, uh, Saturday, uh, our education team comes in and uh, general questions for the first hour, education after that. And um, we'll be back tomorrow. So thank you for that. I think some of us have a meeting right now. So thank you for watching Office Hours. We'll see you tomorrow. I guess I just haven't been doing that cable thing long enough. I'm not successful enough to be able to like, you know, go in and all those cables right there. Well, yeah. Them, they all disappear into the, into the I was multitasking the whole hour. We were multitasking. Yeah.
You, Shut up, Fed Mike. No one cares. It's a great discussion before the show, Alex. About multitasking. Yeah. We could do a second hour on multitasking. And how it doesn't work. Yes. <laughs> I, 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 it's really good for me to be a question asker because there's a whole bunch of things that in our system that aren't working that I now see that I'm like, oh, I got to fix this. I got to fix this. By, by the way. Chris is going to get like a long list of things. <laughs> I'm not me. The other Chris. I, I loaded a, a couple of responses one, one time when I made the joke about sending them for coffee because that was that would have been not as funny if I had done it after your serious response. <laughs> 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 Timing. Okay. What's, what's the key to comedy? Timing. Timing.